Hey everybody, this is Justin, the audio producer at We Eat Art. We could use some help, so we set up a Patreon. We need a little cash to keep this train running on time. We're also hoping we could venture out into different types of episodes, like live guest panels, interviews in other cities besides New York and L.A., and guided museum walkthroughs. You can donate and get all sorts of goodies, like exclusive episodes, stickers, zines, and of course you'll be secure in knowing that you're helping us continue to serve up sumptuous episodes of interviews with with savory artists. Head on over to patreon.com backslash we eat art. Again, that was patreon.com backslash we eat art. Oh, I am going to go eat now. I'm going to go eat some pizza. You're right. I am hungry. Look at that. I told you. I know. You know me better than me. I can tell from the way your legs look. I'm John Mejias in New York. I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Welcome to Weed Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... From my own eyes, I can see where certain things come from, but in the search for the imagery to put into the pieces, I sort of gravitate to certain things that become clues for all the drama that's happening. And today our guest is James Jean, talking about... I stand behind the work that I do, but having gone through that New York art education, I'm very suspicious also of a lot of the stuff that I do and a lot of the work that other people do. When you're on the side of the majority, it's time to step back and reflect. I just want to be able to make the work that surprises me and is challenging, but then it's also revelatory. That's the magic of making the work. Usually we begin at the beginning. Let's do it. The origin story. You were born. I was born in Taiwan in 1979. My dad worked at a industrial plastics company, and he was sort of the star in his family, I guess, because... Growing up, he would tell us about how if he grew up on the farm, he would have to make brooms and sell brooms at the market, and he had to walk miles to the market and, you know, barefoot, trudging through rice paddies and, and all of that. And he has four brothers, three sisters, big family. He was able to sort of rise up and get a nice, cushy corporate job in Taiwan. Of course, cushy by their standards. The salary was pretty low, but a lot of room for advancement. My mom was a school teacher in the south of Taiwan. Yeah, so I was born in Taipei, which is, I guess, the city most people know about in Taiwan. And my dad had an opportunity to work at the U.S. branch of this plastics company. And so we moved to the U.S. when I was three. Oh, so you were three. Now, yes. maybe for most people, industrial plastics doesn't sound that exciting. <laughs> no. But for New Yorkers who may have gone to industrial plastics on Canal Street, it's kind of the most exciting store in the world. There's like oh. a clear red oh, plastic plexiglass shapes and weird mirrors. Did you get to see crazy industrial plastic things as a child or was that was just like your dad had an office somewhere? No, my dad had an office somewhere. I was completely removed from it. And okay. they just produced and sold the raw materials, mm. which is just the pellets that they melt down to make all that. Just amazing. pellets. Just the pellets, truckloads and truckloads of pellets. Pallets full of pellets. Pallets full of pellets. The pallets are made out of the, the pellets. Everything was... Everything is yes. plastics. We're drowning, yeah, we're drowning in plastics. Petrochemicals and... So at a young age, did you come to California? Or no, no, I grew up in New Jersey. Okay, Yeah. which part? A, a town called Parsippany, New Jersey. John, can you hear us? 
Yes, I'm back. Parsippany? Uh, I've lived in Jersey City for less than a year, and I never venture outside my ghost house. I just always keep coming back to New York. So you'd think I could start talking Jersey talk, but I cannot. <laughs> well, yet. it's the suburbs. It's northern Jersey. It was kind of an idyllic life, I guess. You know, we had a right. single-family house, a yard, driveway, two-car garage. You know, enough of a, you know woods in the backyard to go explore on my own. But then, you know, you come across, like, Pfizer, like, in the next field over. You know, and Jersey's known for being the most densely populated state. I don't know if it still is, but it is called a garden state. So if you go in certain areas, there's just, it's actually pretty green and so you get lost. greenery with a subtext of chemicals was your childhood. <laughs> I guess, yeah. All right. Yep. And also, um, English was not your first language? No. So we spoke Mandarin. Although my parents also spoke Taiwanese, which is the local dialect, and it was sort of their secret language that they could use between themselves to talk about all the things that they didn't want the kids to hear. I think that was a little strange because I actually don't speak Mandarin well now. I mean, it's practically non-existent, unfortunately, and I do struggle with talking in general. I don't know why I'm doing this podcast in the first place. But. So far, you told us a, a whole story about your dad in industrial right. plastics without me having to ask any other questions. So, I mean... Yeah, you're doing great. I try, I try. But to the detriment of the whole, the Mandarin side of my brain. I mean, it's in there in the primitive parts. Um, I can understand a little bit. But growing up, I was pretty rebellious. And I, I didn't want to go to Chinese school. They, they actually had a Chinese school where all the Asians would go and, and try and maintain some semblance of their culture, but I, I just hated it. I, I didn't want to go. Why? It's a pain, you know? It's like Sunday school, right? It's like, like extra. Yeah. It's extra stuff on the weekend. Yeah. You, know, you don't want to go, and none of my friends spoke Chinese. And in fact, I wanted so badly to assimilate, I became what you would call a banana, yellow on the outside and white on the inside. Uh, yeah, okay. everybody thinks you're French. <laughs> exactly, yeah, when they, <laughs> when they pronounce my name, it could go either way. But now I'm like a, a rotten banana, you know, brown and overly sweet You're and overly disgusting. Sweet and disgusting. <laughs> like like my art. Brown bananas are the best. I, I buy the bananas, I immediately put them in a paper bag just to get them to that level right away. When you fry bananas, don't they need to be brown? Oh yeah, you know. Yeah. So we can't really get on this fruit <laughs> metaphor, like really. Five hours later. <laughs> I do think there's an interesting story there about, like especially around New York, but all over. There are these schools or summer camps where like people's parents send them to like be their ethnicity. Like I had friends who are Ukrainian in New York and they would have go to Yuki camp oh, wow. all Yuki summer, camp. you know, like, and I know that like my summer camp was Jew camp. Like yeah. they would send you to go be more Jewish yep. all summer. And those were not fun. And I think it had less to do with the specific flavor of the tradition, that it was just simply, it was tradition instead of what was going on for right. me. You know what I mean? It was like, am I going to sing about a goat or like go <laughs> see Guns N' Roses? It wasn't really just like, do I want to be Jewish or American? Right. It was more just like, do I want to do this old timey stuff involving yeah. drugs? Was yeah. that something you rebelled against? or? I mean, I feel like Jewish culture is not oppressive enough 
to rebel against. No, uh, it just are the oppressed. Okay. Right. <laughs> it's also, it doesn't have like a long tradition of being its own thing. You know what I mean? It's, mm, it's right. always been kind of cosmopolitan. Right. But to the degree that, yeah, the more Jewy it got, more about singing and thread and stuff, <laughs> like the less I wanted to be part of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I feel like probably a lot of what people go through is like that. It's just, it's not so much their ethnicity as it's just like they're being taken away from right. modernity. They become disconnected sense. from, yeah, what's, what's going on or, you know, you're taking out of the time that you should spend being with your friends, playing video games and you know, reading comics and, you know, being present. So yeah, I didn't go to Chinese school. Yeah, now it's one of my biggest regrets. So. <laughs> so you eventually got interested in doing art. Do you remember what the first things you were looking at? Things that got that started? Yeah, well, I was always drawing. I always loved drawing. And, uh, you know, I'd go to the public library and take out um, books and look at science fiction covers. So, okay, that could mean a million things. Yeah. You're like, in high school, you're like, oh, I'll go to the library. You're like five, six, seven, you're like, the library is a magical place. It was when I was in elementary school because okay. they actually had a lot of inducements to get kids to go to the library. Like they would have a contest where if you read a certain amount of books, you would get a toy or a prize. And they had so like, like New Jersey's little... doing its job. It was trying, yeah. And yeah, they had like the map in the library, the like shoes furthest along the trail of book reading. Did they have that? We had a caterpillar. <laughs> Everyone who did a book report got a circle on the caterpillar. Uh, right? I don't think ours was as artistic. It was just a chart with the prizes stacked on it. Wow. Do you remember like the earliest things that were like, oh, I can um, draw? Well, th th there were all these instructional books on drawing where- uh, How to Draw 50? Stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The How to yes. Draw 50 series was amazing. <laughs> I remember it would be like, how to draw 50 aliens, how to draw 50 <laughs> monsters or whatever. And there would be all these guidelines that they right. would show you. And you're like, this is not going anywhere. And then the last <laughs> The picture, last one is just this huge jump. All, all the guidelines <laughs> would be gone. It's like a mammoth. Yeah, so my dad had a lot of side gigs or side hustles, one of which was delivering the Star-Ledger, the newspaper. Wait, he so, was an executive in a plastic company? He was company not an executive. And also uh, a newsboy? <laughs> yeah, actually he did eventually become an executive. Yeah, he delivered newspapers on the side and I would help him. And on the weekends, I would have to collate all the papers together so we'd get the Sunday comics oh, and have to man. stack them all and they would be super heavy filled with all these ads. But then I would get to read the comics before anyone else could. So we'd get like, the Star-Ledger printed Prince Valiant, Hal Foster, mm -hmm. Calvin and Hobbes. They put the most well-drawn comics on the, on the front. Right. That probably informed my early development, I think. You were like, I want to be on the front. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily being a cartoonist, but I just loved the drawings. Especially Bill Watterson's, it was amazing, or is amazing. And also Hal Foster, like the Alex Raymond, like that style of draftsmanship where everything's so well proportioned I wonder, like, I don't even know this, I could probably Wikipedia it, but when there are Prince Valiant comics in the comics pages we, we saw growing up, were those old? They might have they been old, new? yeah, I think they... <laughs> like, when were they from? Because I was like, this is cool, but I have no it's idea not, what's going on. Uh, yeah, like, I don't think they're current. And the storylines never really went anywhere. Right, they couldn't, yeah. right? Um, you had four panels or whatever, <laughs> like, and then we walked up the mountain. Yeah. Still on That's why Dick Tracy was so good, because, man, that kept you for, like, two months to follow that story. I don't remember him, Prince Valiant, ever drawing his sword or fighting anyone. I just remember being like, oh, that's yeah. the guy with that hair. I mean, they just had all the, the paraphernalia, mountains. but none of the... It's a slow burn. Yes. I actually feel like I kind of now I want to, like, drop an internet hole and be like, okay, what actually <laughs> happened to Prince Valiant? Where did he go? Yeah. What did he do? 
Was he valiant? Uh, did you go to art school? Yeah, I did go to art school, and um, was that like a thing that you knew was happening, or was it? Like no, it was it was highly discouraged. When I grew up, I was a pretty good kid, good student. I had maybe one semester's worth of art class, mm. and art class in high school was a huge struggle because the teacher had no control over the students. And it was a battle every day. She was like a mousy older woman, and the students just dominated her. And Are we talking about high school? High school, yeah. This is when we're starting to think about college. And for some reason, I only applied to the School of Visual Arts, um, even though I had pretty decent grades and um, good SAT scores and, and all that. What made you decide to SVA? Well, they had a cartooning program. Oh. Yeah, and I wanted to draw comics, so they seemed like the obvious choice. And, I, and someone else, older guy, older student, uh, was going to SVA at the time, and he was trying to get me in there. SVA is, like, so big, it's where, like, all the comic book guys teach. Yeah, exactly. So I feel yeah. like it wasn't a dumb choice if that's what you wanted to do. You know? Right, yeah, there were professional comic artists there. By the time I was thir 13 or 14, there was this comics artist, uh, Adam Kubert. You know? Oh, yeah. So I, I had won this art contest at my local comic book shop, and he told the comic book shop owner to give me his phone number. Nice. And I called him up, and he mentored me a few times. Like, I visited his studio and, and saw how he worked. And So basically, everything worked out, the James Jean story, so far. Uh, so far. I mean, yeah, there'll so be hardship far. down the road, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But like, like the Tom Cruise of... <laughs> I'm just running open-handed, you know, down the, the halls of comicdom. Did you have your own comic characters as a little kid? Did you not, not really. I, I really enjoyed uh, drawing pinups and uh, ver my versions of the X-Men and Wolverine and, and all those guys. What did uh, you win the art contest with? Oh, that's embarrassing. It was... You don't have to say. No, I could say. It was, <laughs> it was Death Blow... Was it as in black real? and white? It was black and white. Okay, yeah. Death Blow, for those of you who are idiots, <laughs> was a very short-lived comic. Yes, where Jim Lee was ripping off Frank Miller. <laughs> but he was doing a really good job. It was like a Sheila Klimt thing where he was like, he was ripping off Frank Miller's like exclusively black and white style, but then he was like adding all this Jim Lee-ish detail. Right. And it was like, whoa. Yeah, it was Jim Lee playing with negative space because, you know, Frank Miller's fans were just leaving out a lot of lines and kind of just, you know, hinting at the form yeah, by omission. And then Jim Lee broke out of his usual thing and, and mimicked that. It also, like, lasted not very long. No, because no. I think it took forever to draw the first issue because it's yeah. so intricately, like, <laughs> there's just so much. Yeah. On the backside of the Deathblow comic, there was a guy uh, who did a Nick comic. Nick Manabat. Yeah, Cybernary, yes. <laughs> amazing like, artist. Yes. Crazy, amazing, detailed uh, Filipino artist, but I think he died. He died, yeah. yeah. It's interesting you bring that up, because I remember learning a really important thing, which I still use because I'm an idiot to this day from Nick Manabat in that first issue of Cybernary, was... If you fuck up, you can just make it black right. and add more, <laughs> more, more texture details and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And like, I think that was literally the first time I realized that you could just take a pen and draw something. Yeah. And if like you screwed up, like oh on the hand, you'd be like oh now they're wearing gloves. Right. You're like oh you yeah. screw up on the neck, like Genius. oh they've got like a little cyber plug in their neck. <laughs> yeah. And literally, I've just been doing that for like thirty years after. That was a couple of really well drawn comics yeah. back and forth. There. Yep, two two well drawn comics stuck into one. Yep. And uh, Azrael? Azrael was the was like a weird religious Batman. Right. Yeah. And a character from Wildcats. 
Okay. Yes. So. Which was it? Uh, Brewster? It's, no, it was not. It was the woman with the. Zealot? With the red stuff fanning out of zealot. her back. Yeah, it was Zealot, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so. And I won a, a gold foil cover Wildcats number one. And uh, after all these years, I think it's only it's worth like twenty dollars. Well, those things <laughs> used to be worth a whole lot of money, and then the internet happened, and it was like, oh right. It was like, oh right, we printed like two million copies, <laughs> and, and they're worth nothing. But then I met Adam Cooper. Adam yeah. Cooper. I have a tough time remembering Adam from Andy Cooper. Right. Yes. They were both sons of Joe Cooper, who is like the guy, yeah. who, like a very gritty guy uh, who did the Sergeant Rock comics, which yes. are sort of which were great. They they had a cartooning school in in Dover, New Jersey. The Cubert School. The Cubert School, yeah, just for training comic book artists. So, uh, yeah, I went to their studio. My, my dad, would he took me there, dropped me off, and I would hang out there for a couple hours. And so how did your dad feel about this? Was he like, I don't know if you'd be hanging out with these comic book <laughs> artists, or he was like, well, they don't look dangerous. I think he was, he was glad I had a, a hobby. You know, it was better than, I don't know, uh, playing video games all day. You know, as I was getting older, I remember my mom crying because she was so worried about me pursuing art or wanting to uh, go into art. So you're, you're falling into my parents were worried category of our guests. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that parents that are from the South or another country, another country. Yeah, are I mean, often worried yes. that you will be an artist. As immigrants, they came to the U.S. to give their kids a better life so that they could become lawyers, doctors, you know, respected members of society. And that's just not what happened. And it's funny now with uh, a lot of the, the people I know that are in their 30s, whose parents are immigrants, they actually go back to Asia to work. You know, they, they don't end up staying in the U.S. They have better opportunities in Asia. And I mean, the U.S. now, it's, it's almost like a third world country. So you're like, they're right. My parents are right. I should have been a lawyer. Yeah, it, it's funny how uh, our fortunes change, you know? You hear that story so much, but I feel like personalizing it is different. For some people, it's like traumatic, and they just don't talk to their parents. And other people, oh. it's like, well, they yeah. were upset, and then they were sure, like, oh, yeah. it's a job. They, they become disowned, and yeah. But no, my, my parents were, were good. We're so all good. You, you end up going to SVA. <laughs> yeah, I went to SVA. Well, you know, they start out all the students in the foundation program. So you have to take oil painting, sculpture, photography, graphic design, and you learn all the trade craft. And, you know, it was like cutting the clear acrylic sheets and like acetate. overlaying yeah, the acetate and, and using rapidographs. And I was developing film in the dark room, stretching my own canvas and all that. But after that first year, I realized I didn't want to draw comics. I think I could tell because as a teenager, I was only drawing pinups. I wasn't doing anything sequentially. So I was interested in crafting a single image. I had a lot of trouble telling a story or keeping my characters on model. Mm. Every time I would draw, the, the, the characters would look completely different or I would somehow get obsessed with, with noodling a particular you know, part of the anatomy. And so during foundation year, I, I really fell in love with painting and painting large. And so I switched my major to the illustration department because uh, it was sort of known at SVA that if you wanted to learn the techniques of painting, you would go into the illustration department. Whereas if you went to, say, the fine art department, you wouldn't really be engaged in you know, life drawing or life painting and, and learning those things. You just talk a lot about it. Exactly, yeah. Which is more, what we're more doing critical. here. Yeah. yeah. And that's something I also regret now because I, I'm sort of not used to that kind of discourse, that vocabulary that a lot of people with MFAs have. But you said discourse. 
which is I like did. pretty much all I know. That and you practice do. my art practice. Yeah, you say yeah. say studio practice. Studio practice, right? Yes. And then we're good. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> SVA is interesting because no one who went to SVA knows anyone else who went to SVA. Like they've never met. Like even if they're in the same class at the same time, it just seems like such a sprawling factory of artists. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's true for my year, but it's weird that I've heard that there are some people who are kind of obsessed with that time I, I went to SVA because there are some pretty famous illustrators that are working out that came from that very specific slice of time. Well, there's a, so. an interesting thing that happened. Like you weren't working in comics directly all, necessarily all the time. Right. And you weren't really working in the fine art system, which is, you know, where I ended up. But this thing emerged that was sort of in the middle, which was illustration but for nothing, like like there's no client, you know, like, right. and it would be shown in galleries and it was like, people were appreciating it and they yeah. were looking at it and they were buying it and, and there, that market still exists. Yes. Juxtapose was probably part of it, right? Yes. Probably like people were starting to appreciate like the skate graphics. Like, I don't know exactly like the nuts and bolts of it, but that was kind of a new thing, yeah. you know? And so I think that's what people are talking about. Yeah, it, you know, I think it became democratized. Juxtapose definitely helped with that. And, you know, it's now the most highly circulated art publication, so they say. Yeah, uh, it used to be Art News. It was always like Art News was the most highly circulated, but Art Forum was more influential. Like, right, exactly, you know? sure. And now Juxtapose is like taking the Art News spot. But it's yeah. interesting because like there's very little <laughs> discourse supporting it, but no. I feel like it's so big that eventually there will have to be. Like at a certain point, people will sure, have to like yeah. adopt a language where they can talk about the, this kind of art. Yeah. I, I think that's true with some of the artists that the art world is embracing now. Say someone like Cause or Daniel Arsham, or these guys have large social media followings that sort of have endorsements from the celebrity world. Like, say, you have like a rapper or some you know hip hop guy yeah. buying your work and then uh, blowing it up, and then the art world sort of comes in and helps support that. Like, say, for instance, uh, you know Kanye did that uh, video with all those wax figures on the bed, right? Which I think they even mentioned in the PR stuff. It was based on a Vincent Desiderio painting, mm, and yeah. People don't know who Vincent Desiderio is. I mean, I do because I'm yeah, I was yeah, a huge probably. painting nerd in school and I had all his books. And right. but you know, only like life painting. Yeah, I mean, I know people. Who that is. Yeah, painting nerds know who he is. But then that that piece was shown at Blum and Poe Gallery in L.A. and it's sort of this kind of weird, you know, crossover now of, of these. Yeah, different worlds. I mean, I think like like Banksy and a few other people prove it like. If right, you yeah. are so, like, people consider you so relevant, yeah. it's embarrassing for the snobbier art world right, to not it. be have a part of that, yeah. you know? And so I think that was a thing. Like, what was your first art job? Did you manage to start showing right away, or were you doing <laughs> other stuff? Like, Well, my goal was to do a few illustrations a month to support my personal painting. You know, so I dropped off my portfolios at a bunch of places, and you know, I graduated with a portfolio filled with these you know, very strange narrative, figurative paintings, oil paintings mostly. No one wanted to hire me. It, it just didn't work for editorial illustration. As a last resort, I dropped off my portfolio at DC Comics. And the reason why it was a last resort, because I, I heard that, you know, comics didn't pay very well, and I, I wasn't expecting to be able to, you know, kind of make a living off of doing only a few covers a month or one cover a month. But actually, Vertical ended, ended up paying 
competitive rates to regular book covers. It's almost like covers are like a better. Oh, they totally are. Yes, pound for pound. Of, yeah, it's, it's kind of a drag because, like, for the comics, because in the end, like, covers pay better than doing the interior, right. which means that the people who are the best are doing cover. Yes, and uh, interior is such a painful, yeah, job. <laughs> That's exactly the word painful. But it seems like comics are so competitive. In that world, yeah, I think so. Because you have so many people wanting to break in. Yeah. The market for them being actually good is relatively small. The fact that you're better than the next guy matters way less than the person's just fast. And it's like, right. it's Superman. Like, yeah. it's Superman again. <laughs> Look, it's Superman. That's yeah. like another month in a row. I always and thought it was interesting that, that Vertigo would have artists that were a little less, I don't want to say less... Uh, the, I can say their arts are less, less, less descriptive than, say, like a Marvel artist. I mean, Marvel, you know, they, they hired artists that were very flashy and really good, but they actually treated their artists worse than DC. DC takes care of their people like, a little better. I think they're always afraid that they're going to leave and go to Marvel. Right. So they're like, <laughs> do you need anything? I, think. I didn't expect the cover thing to take off, and then the covers led to you know, a lot of other work, editorial work, advertising work, because it turned out a lot of art directors read comics, and that's how they became aware of my work. And after it became published, it sort of made them feel like it was okay to hire me. So did you just come out of school and you managed to get the cover job, or were you working yeah. in between? Uh, well, I always had jobs. I mean, I was involved in the tech bubble that was happening then. I worked at a internet company doing animations for children's website. Were you doing the creative end or are you just programming and stuff? No, no programming. Everyone was drawing in Flash. Okay. And I, st I still use Flash to this day. It's, it's a better drawing program than, than Illustrator. So that's where that came from. But, but yeah, a, a bunch of guys I know uh, to this day, artists, we all work together in this office just doing the designs and drawing the characters and backgrounds. And you know, we had other programmers putting it all together. But yeah, those time of like crazy parties and they would be like giving away Hummers at these parties and, you the know. tech bubble. Yeah, during that whole tech bubble thing. Did you ever go to the box? What was the box? The box is like this performance space downtown during the tech bubble where like, like Molly Crabapple did the posters. Oh, and yeah. like, But that was her tech bubble story. Yeah. Was that everything was like just, you know, diamonds and cocaine. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. bulldogs. Yeah, <laughs> bulldogs. That all happened on Wall Street. Then all of a sudden, uh, everyone started getting laid off. But I did the stupid thing of quitting because I wanted to concentrate on, on my last semester of school. And then all my friends who were fired, they, they were able to live off of unemployment for a little while. Hmm. For some reason, I decided to preemptively quit. So this is the dark period. Like, this is, like <laughs> The system finally let you down at this point. You know, I was sort of at a loss as to what to do, how, how to survive, but you know, I was... Always hustling, and did you have other weird jobs in between, or did you um, just sort of nothing too? Weird. To I worked at the gallery's office at um, the School of Visual Arts, so I would help install the work and run the openings. I would serve wine and, and crackers, and you know go over all the proposals for shows. Pretty soon after graduating, I think it was the fall after I graduated, I'd, I'd gotten that gig from Vertigo Comics, and it turned it was like a four issue thing. Was that Fables? It was Fables, yeah. Okay. And it was a huge struggle in the beginning because there was a ton of art direction and I didn't know what I was doing. You know, my work was still developing. I'd I mean, that's the thing. I don't want to go on a big tangent where we lose the thread, but I always feel like you are just all over the place in yes. terms of the technique and the style. You have a recognizable line underneath 
Right. You know, but it's almost like it's not a specific relationship of your hand to a specific instrument, right. which is what most people's line is. Yeah. It's like that line it manifests itself, like it'll be an oil painting and then it's an ink line and then it's like something else. You're always changing this. You're very restless and I'm like wondering like how did the covers, you just have to be like, all right, I'm gonna keep, <laughs> this is gonna be four color. Right. I mean, was there a, a discipline to it that you? Well, that was my biggest insecurity about doing the covers because we had mentioned before about, uh, you know, keeping characters on model, I, I couldn't do that. But Fables was kind of perfect it was because it wasn't like a superhero comic. For the was, people who have never seen it, can you like describe what Fables is well, about? Well, yeah, Fables takes all your, your classic fairy tale characters and puts them in a contemporary setting like New York City. So you'll have this mixture of you know, contemporary stuff mixed with your fairy tale tropes, you know, yeah. wolves and, and dragons, uh, but you'll have like a car, a taxi cab in the background. But you also yeah. have this really, you have this sort of loopy script right. line. Right, it's kind of it's like- It's a cursive yeah. almost line. And so it really puts things, no matter what they are, into that context somehow. Right. Yeah, I think someone described the covers as being very pretty compared to your usual cover work. But they're also, they're not just pretty, they're, there's something 19th century about the bones of it, like, right. not what you put on top, like the color, like you put on a lot of modern stuff, yeah. but there's something that just sort of puts a person back into the children's books of right. a certain period in a way that without having a specific visual signifier that, right. oh, we're gonna be here, you know? In art school, I was a big fan of Arthur Rackham, Edmund Dulac, you know, there's a lot of pre-Raphaelite stuff that a lot of people were into. How about Maxfield Parish? Oh, right, Maxfield. You know, I noticed on my Wikipedia, someone put down a quote about my work being like Maxfield Parish. Oh, I see that. But yeah, sure, Maxfield Parish, for, uh, definitely. We were like inculcated in, in all that stuff in our, our illustration history classes, you know, along with N.C. Wyeth and Dean Cornwell, J.C. Leindecker. Parish and Leindecker both have like a very legible geometric kind of space. Sure, yes. Whereas I feel like your stuff has this sort of, like I think of it as being like Chinese. There's like these layers of loopy lines where you're not quite sure where the ground is. Right. Although you do done so many different kinds of things, some sure. of them are different, but like this thing of like <coughs> not knowing where the ground plane is and it not being that important, like the space kind of looping backwards yeah. is something that I associate with your, even like Fables covers, like all of your. Yeah, I, I think there's something of like Chinese silk scroll paintings or even uh, wood woodblock prints where the space is kind of flattened, even though you have like an indication of like, you know, foreground, middle ground, background, but everything's kind of like floating in this, this middle tone. And yeah, there, I think that sort of lends to that ethereal quality. To be more blunt about it, I think it's more because I hate perspective and I'm really bad at, at doing perspective. <laughs> and I just like playing with those compositional elements and putting them all together on the page without being constrained by perspective. But I also can see why, like that kind of like way of creating space is about like, you would have a static thing that wasn't a comic. It was like decorative or it was like on a screen or it was in a scroll. It would be about people moving, like someone would gesture and the right. bird would fly down. But it's about that movement just being frozen forever. Like you just look at that over and over. Right. Whereas modern comics and also like later, like like Japanese prints, there would be this exact moment. Like it would be this like right. frozen. This decisive yeah, moment. Yeah, and you never do that. You never do the decisive moment. Right. The movement always is part of a composition. Yeah, I, I like to 
have the picture sort of hint at a conclusion that's uh, unclear. Yeah, I, I don't like you know the image to be too decisive. I, I I want that ambiguity to be there. You know that mystery. I have always had a feeling when when anyone does a comic, if you do a comic page that is like really comic-y, like has that frozen moment, and then you make it into a piece of art that hangs on the wall so you yeah. look at it every day, unless it's very carefully balanced, it often feels incomplete. Like Mignola's Hellboy, his art of Hellboy, like in the Hellboy comic, every one of those panels seems like genius. Like you're yeah. like, whoo, whoo. but then when you just have one cover and, you, and then in the art of Hellboy book and it's just like one page and you're yeah. supposed to look at it, you're like, Okay, he hits him, but then what? There's like this right. the movement left and right across the page that doesn't resolve because yeah. it's like there's not another panel. There's no right. and so yeah. there's like this weird like feeling of like, oh, I'm missing out. Whereas your stuff is like, no, it's about going into this sort of vortex right. in the picture. Yeah, I, I like the idea of the vortex. But then I think, you know, I want the vortex to pull you in, but then everything is balanced. I want to get the picture to a point where you can't put anything else in it. I think you have that compulsion too, where you're just like yeah. putting down more and more like, stuff. Like and Schindler's List. <laughs> <laughs> trying to pack, pack them all in. Yeah. Get, yeah trying, trying to save everything. Right. Um, salvage. Salvage the picture, actually, right? Everyone always asks an artist, how do you know when your picture's finished? Well, right. you know, I'm looking at it, it feels unfinished. And you're just trying to get to that place where you, you can't put anything else like it. And another thing will just ruin it. Usually what I do is like literally put another thing in yeah. and then I look at it and go, that was stupid. Well, and I yeah. Go, and then you but then I go, I must be done because I've literally, <laughs> right. like I've literally yeah. tried to put one more thing in yeah. and now I have to, Elsa at that point I'm usually very sick I of I think it. you guys are both like more is more type of guys. Yeah. <laughs> like Ingve Momstein says more is more. I don't yeah, more is more. Oh, Ingve, man. <laughs> you just sent me on a whole journey. Sorry. <laughs> So wait, we never got you to L.A. Oh, well, yeah, so that's that's next, I guess. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know if I should talk about it, but... Uh. If it's personal, <laughs> you can talk about it, we can edit it out, or you can just see what happens. Well, the best podcasts are when it gets personal. Okay, right? so here we go. It's been really <laughs> built up. Let's dive. It's all pent up. Well, no, I, I uh, you know, I was seeing someone at the time, and, and that's why I moved to, to L.A. Uh, yeah, I never thought... I would move to LA. It place seemed so strange and alien to me, and I didn't drive. I mean, I drove in high school. I would drive, yeah, just drive from my house to high school. But uh, but I stopped driving when I was living in New York, and I think I was also a little traumatized because I, I had an accident when I was seventeen, and you know, the lady. I mean, it wasn't a serious accident at all, but the lady ended up suing me, and there was a point where she sued a seventeen-year-old. Yeah, it was. There was a point where I was unsure whether or not we could. I could finish school. It was like. We had to settle. Luckily, we settled. We were able to settle the case. But it was funny because in the court documents, she said that the accident left her unable to perform her spousal duties. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I think she had some trouble with her neck. <laughs> so I, I hated driving. I, I was paranoid. And maybe there's something about living in New York that kind of makes you hyper-aware, hyper-sensitive. I, that's how I felt in the car, these these death machines just racing down the street. Any false turn could just lead to disaster. So I moved to LA, I, I didn't know how to drive and I was helping this other person finish school and helping her through a lot of other stuff. And I was just trying to, I was supporting the both of us, lived in a tiny apartment near UCLA in Westwood. Yeah, just trying to work. 
make my you way. You seem to like it more now. You're still there. Yeah, it's weird because I did go through this point recently, you know, kind of related to this whole thing where I, I moved out of the country for about two years. I just left. This is when I was trying to get divorced at the time. And it's a good way to get divorced, leave yeah, the country. It is. Actually, that's the best way <laughs> if you're having trouble. Oh, God, I got things. divorced. I went to my parents' house. <laughs> so you did good. I, I couldn't go there, actually. Well, it, it was better that, that I left because it got to a point where everyone was just coming after me for all my intellectual property, which is impossible to appraise. That was a big struggle. Do, like, you, just ha- trying to like, value do you have like identifiable IP, like characters and stuff? Like No, but the lawyers would like to try to itemize and categorize. Oh God, that and sounds that. super nasty. It was very wow. bad, yeah. And so, it, yeah, it was like a four-year long thing, and I was like, uh, this is... There's no incentive for anyone to end the case, especially if I'm paying for everything, you know, especially I'm paying for opposing counsel to come after me. So there's no incentive for anyone to end the process. And uh, I just lost everything and then I left. Oh my God. Uh, where, where did you go to? Well, uh, yeah, I went to Southeast Asia. I had a collector there. He helped me out. Very grateful to him. And Collectors uh, are great. Yeah. If I, there's any collectors <laughs> listening to this, you guys are, are great. Just, all y'all. Yeah, I, I basically, I, I did a portrait of his family, and uh, he put me up for a year. I didn't have a penny to my name, but it, I started from when scratch. When was that? This was 2012. Wow. It's weird because, like, yeah. people who are just watching as an artist, like, they don't know any, or as a fan, or, you know, they're, just, they're like, oh, yeah, there's, an, there's <laughs> a drawing and there's another drawing, you know, and right. they're not aware of all this drama. That's wild. Yeah. Well, I actually shut down, like, my website for a time, and... Stop doing any social media. I just, I just dropped out. I'm interested in the economics of just the prints and pictures, like as yeah. not illustration jobs. Okay. Is there a market that like would would support you just making a painting? Yeah. So there is. Yes. So are you just doing that now? That's mostly what I'm doing now. So I'm how long have you been like illustrating nothing? Like to- no clients. You just make a picture and they sell it. Well, I had my first gallery show 2008, and at that point, I just finished a big project with Prada, and I felt like that and was... those were big murals, right? Yeah, there were two large murals, and then the images from the murals were cut down and, and turned into all sorts of different materials, from fabric prints to in-store So they had... You, you were not only making pictures, you were making, like, essentially designs for that, or, like, fabric... That design. project, it didn't start off intending to, to be fabric designs. It was just the murals, and then... Was that for their headquarters? What was that? For? Yeah, it was for their Epicenter store in Soho. Oh, okay, so it was yeah. for the store. That yeah. makes sense. Like, it, it's a big ad in a certain yeah. sense. Yeah. I mean, they have this rotating installation there every six months or so. All of that work for six months. Because those are ma- <laughs> like, those murals are a lot of, like, Elaborate. intense. Like, yeah. I would have been like, oh, we're, we're keeping this, and that's all. <laughs> so I guess an art director had seen your comic stuff and then been like, no. yeah, come over to Prada? Or well, how? that's kind of a funny story, because the guy who did the previous... Mural. Well, it was a wallpaper mural, so it was all digitally printed. But mm. there's this guy, Eric White. Mm-hmm. Did you know his stuff? He's a painter. No, I don't. But I'll look him up. You might have you might have seen him on the Oscars recently because he's mm. he's uh, dating Patricia Arquette. Well, they're, then. they're super tight right now. But uh, yeah, Eric's been around for a long time. Uh, he's been okay. doing a lot of paintings. He recommended me for the mural job because they they were actually looking for a comic book artist to do like a Frank Miller film noir type of treatment where everything was in panels and was black and white and narrative. And I did that. I did that proposal uh, through this design company that does all of Prada's 
print stuff and installations. When that was submitted, Prada actually didn't like it. And mm. they said, we want something a little more historical, romantic, nonlinear, a little sci-fi, fantasy. And that was perfect. I could do that exactly. They wanted you, right? I don't know if they wanted me specifically. <laughs> but they didn't know but that. But they, they didn't know they that, yeah. So I, I submitted my own samples. I did like a couple of sample drawings and they're like, oh, I think this is a good direction. And, you know, based off of some of the imagery from the previous collection, I had created like this kind of long scroll loosely based on this, this narrative uh, of like Mary searching for her little lamb. So in the beginning, you kind of see like Mary wearing like this fur vest and she's calling out to her lamb. Then she goes on this crazy like Hieronymus Bosch-esque journey. And at the end, she finds her lamb and, and is like bottle feeding this sack of fur. They ended up taking that particular image and putting it on a purse, but then they sanitized it a little bit. They took out the, the bottle feeding and put a flower in, in, the, in her hands. Yeah, that's a drag, because the bottle really <laughs> makes that. She's just shoving this bottle into this ball. Did they ask you? Or they just a big did? dumpling. No, yeah, they, they, they didn't ask me. And it was great, because with the mural, I could do whatever I wanted. I had complete freedom. Right. And then they took that material and they did whatever they wanted. But it's it also like out. at that point in your career, you're like, yeah, do stuff. Sure, <laughs> of course. Me, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. So after that collaboration and how it turned out, I felt like that was a good time for me to stop. It was sort of like the pinnacle. And I'd always wanted to get a gallery career going. And mm. So I had a show at, at Jonathan Levine Gallery in New York. And, and at that point, I, I'd stopped doing any commercial work. So yeah, that was 2008. So it's been about like eight Nine years. We have a model in common, Sasha oh, yeah. Gray. Sasha Gray, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> How did you meet her? Yeah, that was around 2007, 2008. I saw this Vice article on her. I think she was doing a photo shoot for Richard Kern. Yeah. And the headline was the world's first existential porn star, something, <laughs> like, something ridiculous like that. Yeah. I asked my friend uh, David Cho if. Oh, you know Cho, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, I, we, we're good friends. And uh, he knew someone that worked with her. And then, yeah, we, we set up like a, yeah, a life drawing, a couple of life drawing sessions. And then, yeah, became friends. And yeah, it's kind of Have you seen her lately? Not recently, because, mm. yeah, she's been traveling and I've been traveling. But yeah, we, we text now and then. So you started having a gallery show. <laughs> Wait, you, you stopped talking about the porn. We're bumping. I mean, I guess, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to ask because I'm like, well, I mean, I've but had how, sex how, with her, but you... I was being paid to. So I don't oh, know. I mean, yeah. I don't know where your stories go with, with Sasha. I know. No, I, we're I, do you want to tell us a porn story? No, purely platonic. Well, uh, then. I mean, yes. that, I don't know. If there's anything else to tell, you should tell it. But other than that. No, no, no. It's, it's, it, was, it was all innocent. Um, yeah. Oh, what a boring podcast. Yeah. Not sorry, you, sorry not guys. Our, our podcast in general. <laughs> she licked up my cum, but you know, that was nice. It was yeah. fun, but that wasn't really an art thing. So she's a really good model because she sits still really well. Yes, she's very disciplined. <laughs> uh, she is. She's all yeah. business. Yeah. So you have been showing <laughs> since then. Yeah. In on and an off, incredibly yeah. wide variety of styles. Right. Like it seems like you'll try anything. I'll I'll do anything. I'll try anything. And I think that that kind of works against me. Yeah. It was a little funny because I had done all this work for my first show and it kind of fit in a certain genre, you know, that mm -hmm. juxtapose type of genre. The images were very storybook like, illustrative, narrative. And then there was a small corner in the gallery where during the last month before the show, I was kind of fed up with doing that. And then I, I did this very expressive, basically exploded like all these elements. So it's like 
intricate, complex, almost abstract paintings. And I painted on top of the frames. And I did like a, a wall painting in the corner to kind of like tie everything together. And that work looked completely different from the rest of the show. And that was sort of the direction I was heading in. Mm -hmm. But then the galleries that had seen that previous work, who I'd, I would never expect to like that kind of work, they actually liked it. But then when they came by to do studio visits and they saw the new work I was doing, they were kind of confused and uh, turned off by it. But perhaps they were also interested because all the work had sold out and they wanted a piece of that pie. Right. You know, they had that economic incentive to show that work. But the next crop of paintings ended up being very dark and disturbing and somber. No one wanted to show that stuff. And I still have some of that work to this day. It was very big paintings. Very dark. I want to see which ones <laughs> nobody wanted to buy in a second. But yeah. one of the things I really like about your work is how many different kinds of things you try. And some of them, I'm like, uh, that's just that kind of right. thing. Like, you're trying to do that. Yeah. And then other ones, I'm like, holy shit, no one's ever got there before. And it's like your unwillingness to, like, brandify. You've got, like, your lines, which are kind of like you're stuck with them. Right. Like, everybody is. Sure. Stuck. But... Even then, you, sometimes you're like working, like you'll do these oil paintings, it's just like, that could be some totally other artist, you know, yeah. and you just keep doing it. And that and I, and is I show it too. Great. I share it. Right? But <laughs> I, I can see how gallery people, like right. they're trying to build yeah. a brand. And exactly, yes. And I, I could hide that work. Right. But I don't know, I have this compulsion to just, just put it out there and, and to see what happens. No, I think that's really great. When something does kind of hit, it's because you've tried to do it so many other ways. Right. You yeah. know, and then something lands is what it seems like. Yeah, so I'm, I've noticed there are a few things that have hit, and I, I explore those avenues, or I, I'm asked to when someone commissions me. Are these the ones um, that nobody wanted? Yes, those are the ones. <laughs> you could tell. I, I was. <laughs> if you guys go to James' site and you look at the 2009 paintings, yeah, these are, they kind of have dark colors but kind of remind me of like pottery like glazes colors right like ceramics yeah ceramic I, I love ceramic glazes actually and i would love to be able to replicate that on onto it and james why did nobody want them do you think they're terrifying yeah they're terrifying yeah. <laughs> okay there's like a dead zebra bleeding yellow yeah but yeah. the interesting thing about this is i feel like this stuff is the stuff even in this snobbier art world, people still are like, bright colors sell and stuff like that. Right. Like if you showed this in like Marion Goodman Gallery, they wouldn't bat it. They would right. They would be like, oh, it's just like that shift of context. Like right. it's supposed to be disturbing. Yes. Versus like, I can buy any James Jean painting in the world. <laughs> I'll, I'll wait the until he's stuff. doing one with like Mickey Mouse <laughs> again or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I feel like only a few painters these days are allowed to do that kind of work or are able to to sell that kind of work. You know, like Adrian Gini, do you know his stuff? G-H-I-N-I? Yeah, G yeah. Like his stuff sold at auction recently for some crazy price. That that weird, you know, figurative work <coughs> but where it looks like a palette knife is just like slashed or scraped across the entire thing to, to create this very disturbing image. I feel like what you're kind of describing is, hey, this one's a GIF, <laughs> is... I'm into GIFs. It's all about GIFs these days. You're creating work that's bigger than the systems that are designed to sell it. The fact that there even was a system ready to receive you in 2009 and sell your work is one thing, but yeah. like you keep pushing the boundary of, yeah. of that. You're just like, 
yeah, now we're going to have a monkey riding right. a tiger. Sure. Now yeah. we're going to have a completely <laughs> abstract painting almost. Now we're going to have like a dot. Now we're going to have something photorealistic. Right. Like, and then graphic design. kind of like or... a David Sally thing going on here yep. in some yep. of these. An assemblage. I love these rings. If you go, let's see, object on James's site. But there's like these rings that just look like they're like a ring and then it's just a drop. Like, right. like it's just melting off your finger. Did somebody come to you or did you come to them? No, they came to me. It was, well, I shared a studio with David Cho and this other company, Good Smile Company okay. from Japan. And they, they're known for making toys and right. producing animation. And they do, they have their hands in all sorts of things. Yeah, so this very wealthy businessman, he supported, he was you know, helping to bring uh, my work to Japan, also Dave's work. He actually uh, put up a, a show in Parco Factory in Tokyo. He spent like $100,000, like, you know, renting the space and building the walls and doing all that, putting our work up and making merchandise. You know, unfortunately, well, that's a whole other conversation about the art world in Japan, but. I mean, uh, I'm actually kind of interested because the idea that we have like these wealthy Italian people who want like obscure art and they buy the kind of art that you would see in a museum is something that is well understood. But I feel yeah. like within the last 20 years, a second market has like moved up, which is of course Cho has like played that like a fiddle, where it's like, they're also rich people, but they don't want that kind of art. Like right. they want a sort of like comic booky inflected. They they're interested in illustration juxtaposed, yeah. and they're paying the same prices, but yeah. they're somehow in this other scene, and yet, <laughs> like it can't stay unsophisticated for very long right. because it's taking over so many other parts of pop culture, like right. Kanye. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's a lot of the Japanese tech people are kind of pushing that. So yeah, tell the story. <laughs> well, I, I feel like. Yeah, in Japan, there's a strong fascination with bringing Western art over to Japan. But fortunately, the apparatus there is very small. The art world there is very small, and, and not many people buy art. So it is kind of this very strange thing where, very territorial thing, where if you work with one person, you can't go somewhere else. Whereas I feel like in the Western world, galleries are trying to share their artists, trying to get their artists in different territories and to push them into these different contexts. Yeah, I mean, it's also like a difference between, in the U.S., you've got L.A., Chicago, and New York, and then San Francisco a little bit. Yeah. And then and so you want to have, like, it's okay to have a show in, like, L.A. or San Francisco if you're showing in New York. Right. Whereas in Europe and Japan, for each country, there's, like, one city exactly, yeah. where all of that stuff is happening. Yeah. I mean, I think the big problem in general is that people just don't buy art there, really. Yeah, I mean, as much as you try and push the artists, it's it's hard to, to build their careers. And I think a lot of the Japanese artists, they do try and show outside of Japan and, and gain a reputation there. You know, I'm working with Takashi Murakami now, and I know he has a lot of frustrations with showing in Japan. And I mean, he didn't have a museum show there for like over 10 years. I think he did a show just this year at the Mori Art Museum. I think he said, oh, that's the last time I'm going to... I mean, the weird thing about Murakami is that like, he would seem to be almost like the kind of artist that would go over less well in Japan. Yeah. I feel like in Japan, Murakami would be like, you're just selling Japanese Right, it is, yeah. <laughs> I thought he was like the king of Japan. Like, I thought he just like owned the place. He does a lot of stuff in Japan, certainly, a lot of collaborations, but uh, I think generally the Japanese art world is, is more enamored with Western stuff, stuff that seems foreign, you know, the other, like the Western world is the other where 
it's it's on the flip side here. But I feel like here, that's why people like exactly. Murakami is like yes. they they're like my kids like anime, but yeah. I like <laughs> this handbag. Yeah, <laughs> this handbag. So you're working with him? Yeah, he. I had a show at his gallery in Japan. He has a few galleries in Japan, so I I did a show there. Poor guy. This last year. He's really having a rough time in Japan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Funny talking to him about the art world. I mean, he has this huge operation set up. It's, it's really amazing what he's built up. Like He's got hundreds of employees. He has these two enormous warehouses that are connected. One is just to hold his art collection. And it's like going into, you know, the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where yeah, right. all those you see all those crates and it's like panning out and it's like this endless thing. And that's exactly like his warehouse. Everything's packed up. The ceilings are like 30 feet high and there's like multiple levels. That's just for the art. And then you go into the the other warehouse where all the production takes place. He has all these silk screens stacked up like thousands of silk screens. And then you go up another level and it's all these people on computers and uh, all these people, you know, making his, his paintings. I mean, that's not something I want to do, but it, it's when you see it, it's it's just really incredible. He's the Warhol of Japan. Yeah, the Warhol of Japan, exactly, yeah. I mean, he actually says people want a clown. And so that's why when you see him in pictures and, and all that stuff, like, you know, Warhol was that big proponent of the artist as the ambassador of their own art, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's not something I can it's really clear do. <laughs> It's clear that you're the straight man, right? right? Oh, like you're <laughs> like hanging with Cho and Murakami. Right. Like you're the, that's, the, you're yeah. the normal one. Oh yeah, I never really. Thought of that <laughs> so, that's what you're trying, like, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, huh. you're the uh, Humphrey Bogart, just the hardworking guy. That's the you picture know? you're painting, right? right? Like, I'm the blue collar guy, you know. I'm I'm behind the curtain. John Cusack, you're the John Cusack. Is that right? Sorry. John Cusack in what movie? Like, who are the other people in this movie? Just as the everyman, just honest yeah. and just working, doesn't have a lot of shticks. I never just thought of that. him as the... Maybe I'll think of someone better in 10 minutes, okay? In Con Air, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, lately he's been playing a lot of hitmen, assassins. He's been going, like... Yeah, because you don't see them coming, right? Like, oh, <laughs> uh, that's the guy. He's got all this built yep. up, you know. He knows the angles, because yes. everyone's been ignoring he's him. playing so against type, just right? to stab you in the back in the end. <laughs> That's, that's me. But it's okay. So Murakami couldn't possibly be more accepted by the sort of highbrow art world. That's true. Yeah. His, he, is he showing like artists like in Japan? Is he showing people like you? Is he showing like like who's he showing? Yeah, he's it? showing people who are kind of on the fringe, mm. fringes of the art world. He even has some manga type of artists, right? That he shows this guy Kim Jung Gi, who's a savant like illustrator. Mm-hmm. he'll draw like a whole panoramic of this whole cityscape with all these characters and everything is in this like fisheye per- perfect perspective. He has a photographic memory, so when you hang out with him, say if he was in this room, he'd be able to replicate like everything in this room in his sketchbook, like all of us sitting here with all the mic stands and the books and, you know, all the, you know, the dirty laundry it and kind of reminds me of a, <laughs> of a Mad Magazine drawing. You know what I mean? Like a, like... Those crowd scenes that Mort Drucker used to do. Yeah. But he's not a savant. Like, he's like a normal guy. He's like, he, I think it was ex-special forces in Korea. Mm. So he could kill you. And he also knows all about the guns that he's drawing. All the details are correct. Um, and he has, like, a family and kids. So he's, like, the normal guy. But for some reason, he has these uh, crazy savant-like powers. 
So Murakami's really pushing these people to be. He is, more yeah. He's doing this show called um, Super Flat, which is based on you know right, his, his, his book and his whole flat. philosophy. And the show is going to be traveling to the Vancouver Art Gallery, which is a very legitimate yeah gallery in Canada. I remember there was a show called. Fat Man and no, was it called Fat Man and Little Boy? It was called something like that. It was at the Asia Society in New York. They would show Yayoi Kasama and Murakami, but they were also showing it next to just like pictures of Godzilla and stuff. Oh. <laughs> so there was like they, they had like a bunch of like animation stuff, and they had yeah. the, the Ultraman designs. Yeah, it was like, well, this is art, yeah. and then this is Japanese culture, which we're right. also going to show you. And Born probably, out of the bomb. Is that what they're... It was like trying to put that stuff into context. And I felt like when they stop doing that, that'll be a big deal. You know, when they start just showing you the art and being like, look, the guy right. who did this is really good. You I know, mean, Japan is interesting because it's so fetishized mm. that you can't help but see it through that lens of anime, hentai, otaku culture and hokusai. And then, right. you know, the technology, Sony and video games and all that stuff. It's such a unique culture. So um, who makes you more scared when they're drunk? Uh, Murakami <laughs> or Cho? Well, it's 5 a.m. <laughs> Cho's drunk. It's 5 a.m. Murakami's drunk. Which, which one's from? scarier? Cho doesn't drink. That's the thing. Every, oh, okay. Everyone thinks he's so crazy. But, but I mean, that's, <laughs> he puts that out. Like, that's his whole shtick. Is like, yeah, yeah. like, I'm going to write something that makes it sound like I'm crazy. Right. He is crazy. I don't want to... Okay. I'm not trying to burst please, any bubbles. Please tell him we'd love to have him on the show, by the way. Drinking or not, At, which one... <laughs> more commie, like, for sure. Is way crazier. Yeah, because he forces employees to, to go to these parties. Like, he'll have everyone go to this restaurant that he'll take over, and he'll force everyone to drink and to, like, uh. slap each other in the face. But like, literally, went, like, slap, like... Yes. Psh- Yes. So and you've been slapped and slapped other <laughs> no, people. No, I'm not part of the, the company. So, so you get to I, just I, watch. I've been told by this through uh, his employees. It was a team building exercise because Morikami <laughs> felt like his employees were too timid and afraid of talking to you know these Western guests that would come visit the studio. And so, yeah, for one month. Bronx them up, you know? They had a party every night for a month. And he... <laughs> Murakami at one point was posting all these crazy pictures. So you know that other artist, uh, Mister? He paints like super anime stuff. Yeah. He's like, you know, uh, one of the artists that Murakami represents. And, you know, like Pharrell buys all this stuff. He's, he's pretty popular, I guess. And he's doing all this cross-dressing and they're doing all this stuff where they're like slapping each other in the face and posting all this stuff nonstop on Instagram. Okay. And then Murakami is telling me, yeah, and then we were losing all these followers. People were... So disgusted and shocked. That we were slapping each other. <laughs> yeah, these like videos of, you know, this guy dressed up as like a schoolgirl rolling around and drunk getting slapped. It wasn't getting It wasn't likes. good PR. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's so weird. But apparently it worked because after that month, people kind of came out of their shells and it's, it seemed to have, uh, you know, encouraged the employees to be more open. So, yeah, definitely Murakami is, is dangerous. Okay. And, you know, he, he can do a lot of things in Japan that he can't do in the U.S. Like, yeah, he could physically abuse his... <laughs> order people to slap <laughs> him. Exactly. Yeah, that won't, won't fly here, but in Japan, it's... I it's would a say magical it's place. Yeah, it is a magical place. Everyone's happy all the time. And, yeah. yeah, maybe progressive. In a certain it's way. something. It's different, right? There's cons- yeah. slapping. So Cho doesn't tell his employees to slap each other. He'll tell them to do a lot more invasive things, like 
you know, put your thing in that person's thing and I'm going to film it and, and talk about it and we're going to put it online. I don't know if you're familiar with his previous podcast, DVD ASA with, uh, with, with Asa Akira. Yeah, yeah that, that ruined a lot of lives and um, <laughs> that, that's why they had to take it all down. And, and They of, took all of the stuff off? They took off? all of it down, erased it from... I know people have recorded the episodes on their own, but yeah, they, yeah. they had to get rid of all that it just it just left a trail of tears the impression that the rest of the world has which i have no idea if is true yeah is like okay so the facebook guy bought cho's thing he yes. said he wanted stock he made a bunch of money yes then he said i'm rich now i can be a maniac and then he did he that was, he was already a maniac okay yeah. and then he had his radio show with asakira <laughs> and on the radio show he was like well howard stern has a show but it doesn't ruin everyone's life right and so then he was like i'll have a crazy show and i'll just do crazy things and that'll happen so he was already crazy he was already, yeah i mean there was also another incarnation of the podcast and it was i think always his, his dream to do a podcast and just hang out with his friends and talk and have it recorded uh yeah he just he wants to hang he wants to hang out who doesn't? Yeah. Well, I mean, some people want the work. I, I don't. I don't want to hang out, actually. <laughs> so I like to be you on here like, no, <laughs> I'm not coming. Drunk. Like, do I have no. to? I've been behind the scenes for a lot of the podcasts just to listen. Because it's a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. It's just unfortunate that the world isn't isn't ready for it. You know, we're just uh, super PC these days. But I've been on once, and he spent the whole time talking about, like, my height. Uh, and for the for those podcast listeners out there, I'm a diminutive Asian male, and he's not like <laughs> tiny by any means. He's you're like five foot eight, right? Five no, eight. I'm five three. We're five, sitting four. on a couch, yeah, so yeah, that's pretty tall. small. But yeah, 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 but I mean, you're taller than Mandy, which is like I'm no, like we a, might be the same. <laughs> she's five feet. <laughs> oh, okay. There so you, you know, yes. You're bigger than me. All right, there we go. <laughs> but not your average uh, sixth grader. Right. So, in any case. You know, Cho's Asian. I'm Asian. A lot of us is Asian. That, that, you know, how we negotiate growing up in the U.S. comes up a lot. And, you know, gender, sex. And so he spent the whole time not talking about the art, but about, like, what I would give to have, like, six more inches. <laughs> would I sacrifice my art in order to, to be taller? You know, just silly, juvenile stuff like that. That everyone's actually thinking, but too afraid. But he to say. can do that because he's like has become like he's David Cho. That's the idea. It's like he just does. Well, I mean, he'll now. he'll do that anyways. I mean, before the Facebook thing, he was already doing like thumbs up on uh, Vice. He was doing that travel show, and he was writing these zines. And that's how I first became aware of his work was uh, this thing he put out. I think it was called Bruised Fruit. Yeah, I got it at Jim Hanley's. I remember. Yeah, I think that's worth a bunch now. So, hmm. yeah, don't throw it away. But uh, his writing was really good. No, I mean, I, he was always good at, like, communicating this. His books would always be, like, putting the art in a context where it was part of a process. Yeah. It was part of this, like, oh, we're doing this now. You know, like, oh, I drew Transformers because, like, I felt like <laughs> right. it. I was in Taco Bell. <laughs> and there was, But there was also, like, a certain kind of way he would tie the art to what he was doing that made it like feel like the real project yeah. wasn't the painting or the writing. It was the connection or somehow, you know, yeah. like, well, it's the, the myth building, you know, yeah. it was part of that, the whole thing. And, but it was also not just building him up as a crazy dude, but also he was an illustrator of a story that was interesting about himself as an yeah. artist in a weird way. Whereas you are just like, 
the secrecy of the narrative is almost the subject. Yeah. In a lot of cases. There, <laughs> like, it uses techniques of illustration. Right. But it's not illustrating another text. No. But it knows that you want to look for a story. Yes. And it's hiding that from you. And the subject is almost the mystery of that, you know? Yeah. I like the idea of people trying to decode the work. I don't know if I'm that aware that I'm doing that in the moment, but of course, you know, after the, the, the work is done, you sort of take a look at it and you, from my own eyes, I can see where certain things come from. But in the search for the imagery to put into the pieces, I sort of gravitate to certain things that become clues for all the, the drama that's happening. Do in, they in seem mysterious to you? Like when you finish one, you hang it on the wall? Yeah, because I, I kind of don't know in the moment where it was heading, especially after seeing a body of work. Mm -hmm. I, I see connecting threads that, like say that, that first body of work I did that I called Kindling, that was for, for the first gallery shows. Um, it was all these uh, children characters engaged in different types of games, like hide and seek, or I sort of did this well-known painting of a girl with a hoop maze, and there's a boy in the distance playing with his own hoop and uh, there's another character with a pinata. And at the time, I didn't know that that's what I was doing, that there were all these characters playing these games that either kind of hint at a certain psychological drama or, or narrative. It was only after having done all that that I could see that that was happening. And yeah. you know, all these games kind of going wrong, something there's terrible one, happening. Like it's one of the like least James Jean ones in a certain sense, it's like a, a calmed down, like there's not a lot going on, but there's one where it's like, a little girl has a lollipop, and the lollipop is a 3D labyrinth. Oh, right. She's like licking a giant lollipop, and it's a labyrinth tilted in space, like you must have done some perspective there. <laughs> yeah. But like, I don't believe you if you say, if you look at that and go, oh yeah, I know exactly what's going on there. Like the goal is that yeah, it's- It's to, it's to mystify, sort of, yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't want to, kind of spell things out for the viewer or, or even for myself. I mean, that piece was sort of related to that older piece where there was another girl holding a hoop maze. Right. And I just had this idea, oh, okay, what if this character is consuming this other piece? It's almost like the picture is ahead of the thought. Yeah, like the yeah. The picture, you know, picture creates a thought that wasn't there before or something. I mean, that reminds me of how neuroscientists say that they're trying to find that space where intention becomes reality. Like... Mm -hmm how does your brain decide what to do? And they do these fMRI scans and they kind of have figured out that you're already thinking of what to do before you're aware of it, mm. right? So they're kind of trying to draw that line between free will and destiny. Like, are we actually in control? Are any of these like just literal dreams? Like I had a dream and then that's that? No, I, I can't really remember my dreams. Do they come out of the sketch process? Like Yeah, yeah. I think all that stuff comes out of just scribbling on a page. And I would say half the time, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's just, that's probably where all that loopy stuff comes from. Because I'm just like scribbling on the page, kind of like teasing out a form from these scribbles. It's interesting because everybody does that differently. Like if you look at someone's I don't know what to do kind of lines, like yeah. mine kind of bounce back, like the little football shape. Yeah. And like John's are like these like zigzaggy kind of things. And yours just do Mine, naturally are, are do these like completely elegant like whoop. Yeah. <laughs> it's like cursive. That, that's how it's I masturbate too. It's like, it's yeah, like in loop. circles. Right. Is your dick an oval? 
It is, yeah. Oh, it's well, that explains all of this. <laughs> I wish I could zigzag. Right? But, you know, everything's just complicated. Yeah. Zigzagging rules. Okay, so I'm looking at consumption from 2009. Right. Yeah. It's a baby, but then the paint is kind of like blots out the baby's face. And then right. there's like on the end of this fork, there's just sort of this goo. Did you see that in your head or did you just start painting it and then? No, I just started painting it. And it's, it's sort of amazing that you don't have a million reference pictures for everything that you can make these things from, from your head. Like I got a reference picture of everything. I do use uh, reference photos. Okay, good. I feel better now. <laughs> for some of the work, I purposely try not to use reference because then it, it kind of paralyzes the process a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like a lot of this stuff, like if you had used a reference, like a lot of the things are like the idea of the thing. Right. You know, so like, yeah, this newer work you're looking at. I'm right looking now, at 2016. Okay. Yeah, there's no reference for that. I'm just purposely trying to draw the figures, the characters from memory and allowing distortions and mistakes to happen. Even though people will look at it oh, like there's no mistakes, but compared to a photograph, you But the number of different. times you've drawn like a monkey or a, or a scissors or whatever, you sure. eventually, it's in your hand and you can go right. fuck with it. There's this awesome <laughs> picture of, okay, so it's an orgy and then everyone involved has a rabbit's head, but then their bodies are like, they look like Canova, you know, like that Cupid and Psyche sculpture yes. uh, where they're kissing, but their bodies are like perfectly anatomically correct, but their heads are giant yeah. cartoon bunny heads. Yeah. And it says digital. Yes, so, that was drawn on an iPad. <laughs> So, like, how did how how the hell does that work? What's the process? I, I did sketch this out on a sheet of paper first. Okay. Yeah, it's a struggle to try and figure out how all the figures intertwine and how everything's going to fit together and to balance all the elements, right? Because you want did the you, eye you to. You draw this bunny first. I, girl, I did. Yeah. The one in the yeah. middle, the, right? in the, middle, like, the focal right. point. I was pretty sure how that was going to go, and then figuring out how to fill in the rest of it to support that focal point was not easy. I do the sketch constant erasing and figuring out. And then I scanned that in and I imported that into the iPad and then I used the, the Apple Pencil and just kind of so created a higher res. How close in terms of pixels do you get into these things? Because this looks, if you go look at Aide Lapin, A-I-D-E-S space L-A-P-I-N. <laughs> this um, was a commercial project, by the way. It wasn't uh, so this So they're selling bunny sex bunnies? No, it was for an NGO <laughs> in Paris. An NGO? Yes, safe, oh safe sex. I love safe France. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, we need some sex <laughs> rabbits. France is better. Okay, so the NGO came to you and they're like, we are trying to prevent this, this spread of AIDS in France. We want you to create an image of uh, sensuality. They will be paid people, but they will have the heads of rabbits yes. in a sort of uh, erotic situation. Can you create this for us? Is that how it went? That's exactly how it went. And they had their in-house illustrator come up with preliminary comps, digital paintings of it. So did that per head person had already, Yes. they already had a concept. They already had the concept in hand, but the problem was the rabbits looked too aggressive and angry. And just imagine trying to draw an animal head by having the mouth open and having it that expression of ecstasy. It could easily turn into something kind of have, horrific. Yeah, yeah, they look horrible. I remember there's actually a good interview with the Disney animators talking about Jiminy Cricket, and they're yeah. like, it's not a cricket at all. Because if we drew a cricket, that movie would be a horror, horror movie, yeah. right? <laughs> so we had to make him just like a guy with big, nice eyes. They I worked with them before. Okay, yeah. so that NGO. Well, this was with an advertising agency, and part of 
their pro bono work was to assist this NGO AIDS right. in, uh, in France to create a campaign to uh, promote yeah, safe sex. And uh, the previous one we did was maybe even uh, it was 10 years ago. And it was just all dicks everywhere. Was that 2006? Was like, that's not posted it's on not my our, website. Okay. You yeah. didn't put the one with all the dicks? I did two versions. I did one with a girl floating in a condom surrounded by an ocean of dicks. We had like sea turtles with dick heads and a dick octopus with balls. And I think the technical term for that is dictopus. Yes. <laughs> and then they had an alternate version where it was, a, it was a guy flying in a universe full of planets that were breasts and butts. <laughs> there was like jizz as the nebula in the background. <laughs> so what do you think the ad agency is thinking when they're like, this is my concept, <laughs> who's my illustrator? What is like their brief for James G? Can draw bunnies fucking, but makes it look sweet. Lots of people who draw bunnies fucking, they would yeah. never call me. Right. <laughs> they would never call me. And then all the people who'd make it look sweet would never want to draw bunnies fucking. Yeah, I'm interested in... All sorts of things, and I feel like I can use that vocabulary and carefully pick and choose and, and make an image that treads that line. Ladies love your work. There is, yes, they, they do. There is a certain, <laughs> like Fable was really popular among right. female comic Fables. artists. Fables. Fables, right. Fables is, is, is the, the game. Is the game where you have to eat asparagus, the, celery, yes. whatever. <laughs> but Fables was really popular among a female audience. Yes. There is a certain sort of decorative feminine yes. quality uh, to your work. So, has that worked out? <laughs> <laughs> That's the segue? I don't know. I like uh, so how's that going? Wink, wink. <laughs> when did you become a dad? <laughs> a year and a half ago. Okay. So. Congratulations. How's that? You have to make certain compromises when you have a kid around. And you looked real shifty. Like it seemed like these compromises went way beyond what I was thinking. Like I was thinking, oh, you might make less work, but you were like certain compromises. <laughs> no, no, just being able to pick up and do whatever you want to do. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, like say if I wanted to make ceramics tomorrow, I can't really do that. Everything is set according to a schedule mm. dictated by the child. And, you know, where do you live and all of that. Like, would love to be able to just pick up and travel and go hang out with my friends who are constantly just traveling the world, doing whatever. But on the other end, like, they're kind of aimless. And, you know, they're always searching. Whereas I'm forced to have this thing that I have to focus on. I think with my art, there's always a little bit of self-sabotage mm -hmm. that goes on. To go back with Cho, he's completely uncompromising with his life and what he does to the extreme. Like he'll just do whatever, he'll make whatever avenues open up to so he could pursue whatever crazy thing he wants to do because yeah, he's not normal. Whereas I'm also, normal. He's, he's now fantastically wealthy. Sure, so that yeah. probably helps a little, right? <laughs> I mean, well, he was doing pretty well before as like a gambler and doing other, you know, projects here and there selling his paintings. Yeah, Dave is in, you know, that range now and so he can do whatever but he, he wants shares to. a studio with you well we, we did share a studio together for no. like three years right. like 2010 to 2012 13 yeah but i'm normal for some reason like i have to have a house and to you know have a wife and to have a kid and to do these normal things and pay my bills and taxes and be responsible having a kid is a good way of pulling you out of yourself 
Yeah. Right? You spend a long time thinking about yourself and what are you going to do and this and that. Like a kid just, some people love that and some people have a problem with it. But I, like, I feel like your work is so involuted. It is so much about your unconscious. I think that satisfies that compulsion, the, the work when I'm making it. Like I'm not uh, tortured by that stuff that a lot of people are like, what am I going to do in life or what is life all about? Why am I here? You know, what do other people think of me? All that kind of uh, gestalt that gets people to drink and do drugs. You're the first not existential artist, is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) The goal is not to figure out anything in the work, it's that the goal is the mystery. You know, like, and that is such a frustrating and strange thing about it. On the one hand, it's like, there's a mystery here. Like, I like the mystery. Like, I want it to be a mystery. And that's what makes it hard to have a podcast about art, right? Right, And to have artists talk about their work. I think I remember seeing this documentary with uh, Gerhard Richter, and he's like, I make the paintings so I don't have to talk about them. Uh, Well, my take has always been, if we don't talk about them... Other people are going to talk about it. Other people do, and they're bad at it. So, you know, we're bad, but we're better than them. (laughs) I am interested in how long you managed to state. Because you used to have a restlessness about the way the art is. You know, like, it'll be like this color scheme, that color scheme, this medium, that medium. Right. How do you stay in like one mood or one place long enough to finish? Like, what did it take? Like a month, two months? Like, how long? No, a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah. So, like, how do you stay in like one place, or do you like work on several things at once? Yeah, I sort of have several things going on at once. I do have a list of things to do. So, like, I line up all these. Well, my my work has gone through various modes where, you know, I was doing a lot of commercial illustration. Then I was just doing straight. Personal work, fine art. I, I don't yeah. know why I hesitate to use that word, fine art. But And then now that I moved back to L.A. and I'm sort of trying to climb my way back to normalcy after my divorce, I am taking on a lot of commissions. I have a list of things I constantly have to go through and, and knock down. So that gives me this schedule and, and apparatus to, to work from. I mean, if I didn't have that, I'd probably be doing what I was doing when I had my studio with David Cho, where I had this huge cavern space and all these empty canvases lined up against the wall and not knowing what to do. And just going to the studio and spending hours just like going through books or, or sitting on the couch and staring and, and thinking. And um, I think I'm the sort of artist that needs, needs some kind of constraint, right? Or, or limitation to kind of well, how, get do you, going. how do you feel about working with clients? Like, it seems like you've done some really cool work with clients. Like, I guess at this point, when a commission comes in or the idea of a commission, like probably ad agencies know you, right? Yeah. Do you have like a certain standard or rules about like what you're going to take or how you're going to take it? Like, how does that work? Well, if I do something for an ad agency, it's it's how much freedom I have and, and how it's going to fit within the overall body of work mm-hmm. so um, you want it to count like yeah i want, want it to count yeah. exactly i want to be i want to be able to it's put it to team. share it yeah and to have it feel like it's part of the universe and then the other type of commission is just from a personal collector mm-hmm. who, who likes a certain type of work and then they maybe send me a few images of pieces from the past that that they relate to and i come up with a sketch i send it to them make sure we're on the same page and then do those work out do you feel good about them <laughs> Well, yeah, I I stand behind the work that I do, yeah. but you know, having right. gone through that New York art education, I'm very suspicious also of a lot of 
the stuff that I do and a lot of the work that other people do. You know, when you're on the side of the majority, it's time to step back and reflect. Okay. So I know that I'm a very popular artist among a certain demographic. What does that mean? Social media, a lot of people like my stuff. But I mean, what's so. the demographic? <laughs> like humans or <laughs> people that are not in the in the cloistered uh, fine art world. Okay, so you're very okay, and therefore what? And therefore, there's not that that critical discourse that that we, we okay. mentioned earlier. You know, there's it's, not that theory that you, that people you're require. Like, you don't. So, are you saying for you, does it feel like you don't want to get asked to repeat yourself, or you? Want yeah, to- I, I just want to be able to to make the work that surprises me. Yeah, and it's challenging. I like what Michael Bormans. He has this documentary called "Knife in the Eye," mm-hmm. and that, that's basically just the most pithy line in the whole thing is he wants to make a painting that puts a knife in your eye, you know, mm. like that kind of shock where it's like, oh, where did that come from? But then it's also revelatory. That's the magic of making the work. There's like a moment where it arrests you, but then after you've been arrested, it stays and keeps going. Yeah. I mean, I often think like a really good design will arrest you, but then you're like, oh, that's all. And then often like a very good historical painting will keep you going, but it right. doesn't grab you to begin with. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of contemporary art, I feel like is actually good graphic design. Right? Yeah, right? No, I know I tell you what you mean. It's like, whoa, it's a noose. Right. And then you're like, that's all. Yeah. You know, or like, oh, it's, it's yellow. And then you're like, it's a yellow blob. Yeah. I'm looking at it from over here and now it's a yellow blob. If you stand over here and look at it, it's a yellow blob, right? It shocks you and right. then you're like, I've been shocked, and now I'm going to... But then again, I, I also wouldn't mind having it on my wall because it kind of, you know, gives a sense of serenity. You know, my, my place is like the opposite of your place. Yours it's is like, like very... completely uncluttered, very minimal, and I've always been like kind of neat. I mean, to my standards, I'm very disorganized and chaotic, but when I go to, say, like your place or David Cho's place, it's just like a pile, like a landfill of... <laughs> History, memories. And, I can uh, feel you're very you uncomfortable. You don't hold on to memories? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm freaking out. I want to like move. I'm drowning in wires. You. I'm drowning in wires here. If it, you know, podcast listeners yeah. uh, can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything. The first thing I remember of yours that I loved was the Batgirl cover, oh. which is not <laughs> in your thing, which I can understand why you wouldn't put on right. your website. There's a awesome Batgirl cover. It's like the color process is weird. Like it looks like part of it is in color and part is in black and white. Like, right. and there's little dots from having been printed. Yes. Like a, it is the Batgirl cover that every Batgirl comic now, like where they're trying to make Batgirl like cool and for girls <laughs> is copying that impression created by that. I don't remember what year that was, but it was. Were the dots, it was like large. Yeah. Well, which, well, you could find. I, I know that they keep reprinting one particular Batgirl cover in like these, you know, best cover anthologies that DC keeps putting out. Yeah, I think the fact that comics are such a male-dominated industry, the imagery just comes off looking very... Oh, that one. That's the one. Yeah, yeah that, that's the one that... Um, it says Batgirl 45. It says 2002, but that can't be right. No, it is. 2003? <laughs> I guess it was in 2000. She's like yeah. punching this dude with like all these tattoos. Yeah. And then there's like big red dots from the color process style. Yeah. Uh, and it is half tone. Fantastic. Dots. Yeah. 
yeah, I think people lose sight of the, the femininity, the, the beauty and the violence. There's one other artist I think that does a pretty good job in, uh, do you know Adam Hughes? Oh yeah. Yeah, so For he's, sure. yeah, he's an excellent comic cover artist. I remember there's a book of like DC's women superhero book, right? It's like Louise Simonson and Adam Hughes are talking. And so Louise Simonson has this like long thing about like the role of women in comics and women characters and blah, blah, blah. And then Adam Hughes is coming and it's like, well, sex sells. Yeah. So my covers <laughs> go over well. But he, he like, has a real appreciation for the anatomy. He, I mean, it, it is kind good. of a... No, he's good. He's good. I mean, he, he does use a lot of reference. So he's able to get like really good foreshortening, which is super difficult. He gets the usually. curves he gets, he gets yeah. the weight. But he has a sensitivity to the curves and the weight that a lot of comic book artists, I think, no, yeah, yeah. And he like the idea of like how those costumes hit a person, like the way that the lines will rest on the skin, right? Rather than it just being a shape that has like a, a sort of graphic design element on top. Right. It's like, yeah. oh, that's gonna dig into that. Right. It's not painted on. That is a yeah, on like the body. But his stuff is like figures sitting in a space. Yeah. Whereas yours is like, it's like it's a whole <laughs> moment. Like this picture, okay, so Batgirl like kneeing this guy in the chest. Right. But it's not really a realistic frozen moment. It just fits together perfectly as like a little, as a, as a moment. Yeah. There's like a the blue triangle with the, yeah, the intersecting the red and her fist is out, but his glasses are shattered. So the moment has passed already. And then it's almost like she's posing for the camera, this like paparazzi. But the moment you're supposed to do when someone hits someone is like either way before they hit them right. or way after, right? Like, yeah. and this is like totally not the moment you're supposed to do, right. but it works like so perfectly just as a balanced. I can see simultaneously like a lot of other things that come up in your art and why Shh. doing an actual comic would be incredibly frustrating for you. Yeah. That girl's just very relaxed. Like, this is just my job. <laughs> but how is she doing that in those heels is what I would picture girls saying. <laughs> There's a whole Rick Leonardi story about how Batgirl, she wore <laughs> heels and then she's like tripped as if she stopped wearing heels. But kind of what I love about it is like, the, there's always this implied thing that she's going to kick someone right through the eye with this yellow high heel, yeah. which is why they will never hire me to do uh. a Batgirl. <laughs> right. Have you done any... Done, stream. I did one page of Dial H for Hero, or the when Justice League took it, because oh. China Mayville took it over. Because Vertigo is like, we want you to do something, we want you to do something, we want yeah. you to do something. And I'm like, okay, here are my ideas. And they're like, your ideas are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> then they're like, we'll call you. And they're yeah. like, but we really want you to do something. And I'm like, and then I'm like, well, I'll do something dumb, but you have to give me way more money. And then they're like, oh, but we can't. We're Vertigo. Yes. So yeah, comics are just a horrible ditch. It's just sad. We have so many artists on of all kinds who are so influenced by what they see in comics. Yes. And they kind of interested in them. Yeah. But then the actual business of doing them for them when they grow up, yeah. it's not enough to support somebody trying to do good work most right. of the time. Like you get like a short run of something cool from someone cool and then it's gone. Well, not necessarily. There's actually a whole underground economy that supports these comic book artists. So you have all these collectors who buy the original art and they trade it or they you know, commission something on the side even though it's like an unlicensed piece of work. Right. The companies look past that 
So someone like Adam Hughes, that's what he'll do. He'll travel to all these conventions and make a ton of cash. But he never makes any comics because of that. Because of because, that, yeah. Yeah, so. which is like, like Alan Moore was complaining <laughs> about that in the early 80s where he was like talking about how like Chaikin and Kaluta and all these other like 70s dudes had done some awesome comics. Right. And then they were going to stop doing comics soon and just do covers and do right. that stuff yeah. because now they were recognized as good. And then he was like writing about how Frank Miller's Daredevil was really impressive. He was like, I hope this doesn't happen to Frank. I yeah. hope Frank stays poor so he has to keep drawing actual comics. <laughs> but it's a weird catch-22. Like as soon as you're good enough that people recognize you're good, right. you don't have to make comics anymore. And even though they just are so fucking time-consuming, yeah. you know. Do you ever feel like you want to do something in like a actual explicit narrative format or are you just like screw it i would like to be able to have the talent to do that it seems like you get bored though with like you have to change up your style yeah i just can't keep characters on model like, i hate drawing the same yeah, it's it's like work yeah like chris ware he's the most tormented guy oh, and i'll just always say yeah. like how, how painful it is to draw the comics but you, you know he he likes the pain he's a, he's a masochist yeah he does I wanted to go back and ask you how the driving's going now. Is the driving doing better? Oh, yeah, I drove here. Sweet. Everything is completely normal now. Uh, It was just the trauma of the previous relationship and everything. And now I'm uh, I'm fully functional. Now you've got experience. Well, I can't drive, so now I feel worse. Oh, you don't drive? No. Really? Yeah. So you just stay in the downtown. (laughs) No, you can actually get to other parts of the city without driving. You can Uber, metro. Lyft, Metro. You all, I also know people who drive. Oh, wow. So between all Damn. those things, it's possible to move But what, what if you want to transport something, like put something in the trunk of your car? like If I want to transport, or? well, I don't work on Canvas. I work on paper because oh. I was a New Yorker. So why would you? I don't understand why Canvas was invented personally. <laughs> so I work on paper. Yeah. But if I did want to move something big, I'd probably Uber it. Wow. Nice. I'm going to guess. I don't know. I'm impressed. What I like about ride services is that if you're writing a story, you then have like an awesome list of real people's names. Yeah. Because you've got all these text messages like, Jose is coming to get you. Right. Like, Evita is coming to get you. And you're like, oh, these are what real people are named. (laughs) That's what you got from that? Yeah, that's the main thing. You're in the shit. I mean, also, like, I don't talk to any normal people all day. Like, I just talk to artists and, like, people who work at takeout. Like, that's it. But now, you know, I talk to Chiol and Juan and Johnny and Ron and Joseph and Gustavo and Georg and Herbert and Clifford and Star Star. and Jose Manuel and Ming and Omar. Then I'm like, wow, this is, this is, I'm, I understand. Ming and Omar sounds like a buddy comedy. Ming and Omar sound like, (laughs) Omar's the one with the talent and Ming is the one with the vision. Right? And Ming is like, come on, man, you could be big. And Omar's like, I don't know. I right. just. I just you know. want to chill. Omar wants to chill. Right. And Ming but, is like, no, it's going to be big. You're going to be big. This is going to be stop great. Stop thwarting me. <laughs> I don't know where this podcast is going now. Oh, we got all the mystery. Oval Dick. You have learned to drive. Uh, divorced. We did. Cho Murakami. We were talking about Chris Ware, who looks tortured. He's tortured. He's yeah. actually, he's like, oh, it's hard to draw. Because you look at it and you go, I couldn't draw that many circles. And then he's like, it's hard to draw that many yeah. circles. Yeah. And he won't use uh, Photoshop. Like, he'll just draw the same building twice or three times. He'll be like, why? You could just duplicate that. <laughs> we're in the same yeah, the biennial at the Whitney Biennial. Oh, yeah. And I remember yeah. thinking that thing about the model. I was, I was like... 
that guy can draw the same thing twice. Yes. I can't. Yeah. Like, a lot of times I'll be, like, people will be like, is that guy that guy? I'd be like, yeah, but it's not important that you know that. But I had the Gravity's Rainbow thing, yeah. which is, like, there were a lot of times where I'd be like, how do I draw this same guy twice and make him look totally different? Because yeah. that's only way it's fun for me. Right. It's like yeah. if you're reinventing the face each time. Yeah. Um, and, it, yeah, it works for, for Pynchon, you know. We didn't really talk about... We talked about the line having that feminine quality. We didn't talk about the color also kind of does. But now I just said it, so we're good on that. When do you do digital instead of physical? Like, what makes you decide yeah. to do that? I, well, the image just tells me. So I, with the sex rabbits, were yeah. you like, oh, this has to be digital? Yeah, I, I didn't want... As much as it looks like I enjoy rendering things, mm -hmm. I, I don't like to render things. <laughs> So that's why that's I... That's surprising. <laughs> I'm full of surprises. People so just which part do you like? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I mean... It's no fun. You hate it all. I hate... No, no. I, I, I love the drawing part of it. All right. And then I like the end when you're popping in that highlight. You know, it's like Rubens had that whole studio of people making his paintings, and he'll just swoop in and, like, pop in that glistening highlight in the eyes and in the corner of the eye and that was that i would love to be able to so you go over go over to like parsons and get some art students you just be like i'm gonna draw it i'm gonna pop in the the whites <laughs> at the end and you just do the yeah. rest yeah i mean i was crazy as an art student i used to go to life drawing at parsons mm -hmm. in addition to sva and then i was sneaking to cooper union i knew a student there and oh then, shit yeah so i went to cooper to do uh. some life drawing and i was like how can anyone draw here no one turns on the lights you're in the dark, the model has the light, but you're like at this drawing table that's in complete darkness. I'm like, how does it? I'm like, oh, that makes sense because no one is interested in uh, No one can draw, Cooper. Yeah, no one can draw. What are you trying to say? <laughs> you want to fight me? I'll fight you. I'll fight you on this couch right now. Uh, we can embrace. We can embrace on this couch. It's all love, <laughs> peace and love. We're going to hug. We're hugging now. You actually can't tell because of the... It's a, he, it's he's inside of me movie. right now. Yeah. It's a, right through the oval. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's a it's, donut. I don't want to picture any of this. I'm still just impressed that you went to all those places. You did a lot of life drawing is the moral of right. that story. Life drawing. Yeah. And each school had its own, like, school of, of thought. Of way of, of life. If you want to be a good artist or good anything, you have to be a little obsessed. That's yeah. actually an interesting question, though. Because, like, if you did go to Parsons, SVA, and Cooper, and you saw all the actual drawings. Yes. So your take on Cooper is that they couldn't draw. Right. And Parsons wow. also couldn't draw. They had this weird scribbly thing where you would just like <laughs> react to the model and then you take like a, a pen and a nib and you just scribble crazily on a, a paper. A gesture drawing. Gesture that's drawing. That's what yeah. that's called. However, in <laughs> SVA, we had a different idea of the gesture. So I had this teacher called Jim McMullen. Yeah. He was a very <laughs> famous poster illustrator, but okay. he had this drawing program at SVA called High Focus Drawing and it was all about trajectory curves mm -hmm. and drawing this arc that's supposed to represent the energy in the body and where the pose is going, the narrative of the pose and reducing things so that you get the idea of the pose in a certain way. So it's very specific, okay. cerebral, much more cerebral than the other types of drawings out there, which is just basically trying to grasp at some semblance of a figure where he was trying to break it down and uh, intellectualize everything that was happening in the body and, and creating this patchwork of lines that was 
more of a narrative than, than, than a graphic thing. So his gesture drawing was very pointed, very specific, analytical. I felt like that's sort of where I got this kind of lyrical stroke. It also seems like in his stuff, he's breaking up the space into different parts. Yeah. So it's becoming a picture right away. Yeah. Whereas like the way that figure drawings usually caught is like you're not making a picture. You're just trying to learn to just deal with the figure. Right. Whereas I feel like if you are an illustrator, the idea that the figure is always part of a picture right. and how is how is the figure working in the picture yeah. is like a it's a yeah. separate idea. There's another teacher who would start off every drawing by drawing a uh, a rectangle in the perimeter and then you'd have to Fit it put in, in all the elements and by drawing that perimeter you automatically are making a composition or having to be aware of that composition. If you do illustration, you do end up being like I've drawn this awesome thing that doesn't fit in the picture and there's yeah. no room for the Coke can. <laughs> like that happens. So you nail the Coke can on to the side of the picture. Right. And, and you then, can do that if you're a fine artist. Yeah, if you're Rauschenberg, like, yeah. the, the whole world is your canvas. Yeah. You know? And if you're not Rauschenberg and you're making like a Coke ad, you're fucked. Yeah. So I can see how those two different <laughs> ways of drawing make yes. perfect sense for yeah. those two different Then you become a crackhead. Did that happen? Did you have a crack period? No, I, I never did any, anything interesting. Well, I mean, crack can be interesting, but it can also be like a, you know, a spiral to not interesting very quickly, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think I'd, I'm more interested in like nootropics and those types of drugs. Uh, yeah. Modafinil. Modafinil. Modafinil sounds like someone who went to Smith. <laughs> like, hi, I'm Modafinil. <laughs> I'm doing my thesis on Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like Adderall. Okay. It's supposed to boost your brain function and... To make you write like a whole lot for no reason that other people can't understand. <laughs> Actually, I've never done it, but I've always. You're uh, interested. I'm in interested in it, yeah, because I'm paranoid about having early onset Alzheimer's, and uh -huh. even doing this podcast, I was worried I wasn't going to be able to string together a sentence and remember my past or things like that. Okay, Walt Disney, <laughs> Fantasia. Fantasia was a big deal. Yes. Like, was that an influential thing for you? Because in Fantasia, each movement of the movie has a different song. Yes. And then a different palette. Yeah. And then different mythical creatures yes. acting weird. It wasn't so much of an influence, but I can see how it's relevant now. But uh, I mean, you had to like deal with a Disney thing with fables, yeah. right? Because cause Disney had already done what fables did in a certain sense, is sure. that like reinterpret. Yeah. And so, but you managed to get around that. But I feel like that's like a, it's a subtext of a lot of what you do. Our ideas about like a Disneyfied world, and then yeah. they get kind of altered. Yeah, during my last year of school, I was doing some work that referenced a lot of animation, Disney, a little bit of Crazy Cat, mm. Harriman stuff. Because I was also reading a lot of comics, like uh, you know, like Daniel Klaus and uh, Dave Cooper was really good, uh, Chris Ware, and and they referenced that stuff too. So that was creeping into everything I was doing, and just the the way things are drawn with with how loopy everything is you know how everything's circumscribed in this like perfect curve yeah that was also part of it just just intrinsically just making the work that was just the way i drew mm. laboring over over that curve and trying to get that balance between you know that disney-fied aesthetic and pairing that with something that's a little more disturbing or dark spanning that spectrum was what i was interested in doing and i think yeah that that carries through 
Oh yeah, Kuniyoshi and Yoshitoshi and <laughs> Never mind, th Disney. there's so much crazy. stuff. It's crazy. Oh shit. Because he's funny and he's got birds and then he's having an orgy and then there's octopus and they're kung fu fighting each other. So I really think of him, you know, when yeah. I think of your stuff. Yeah, I mean they're they're all just great drawers, you know. But there's an interesting thing about that late ukiyo-e market where it started out as people needed things illustrated. Like these actors would have these uh, advertisements for right. themselves, kabuki. these like kabuki actors, and yeah. so they would make these posters, and that was their face. And then they, the the plays would need ads, and so they'd do that. And then eventually, the ones who were really well respected mm. just got to draw whatever the fuck they wanted. Right. And so the late era, like Yoshitoshi, was like, I want to make like a, a yeah. scary ghost uh, talking to a fox, yeah. or <laughs> or a hundred uh, phases of the moon, you know, or hundred views of Mount Fuji. Yeah. But that's similar to what happens today in the contemporary art world. You, you make a series and... But it was also, it's interesting because it was considered, they were the low art. Japanese and Chinese brush painting were the high art. Right, the calligraphy. And, yeah, and yeah. ukiyo-e prints were a popular art form. They were printed yeah. and people would buy mass them. Mass-produced. And they were mass-produced. And But then eventually what we look at now is yeah. the okay, like those seem to represent something new to us. And they have that, the loopy, calligraphic, elegant stuff. You can see Japan doing the opposite of that very early. Like very early on in Japanese art, they'll be like, we're mostly copying a Chinese model and it's like a monkey, but this yeah. monkey is gonna jump off the page any second now. Right. Like there was, there was that like clash between sensibilities very early that you could see. Yeah. So I guess I guess I don't think as much about okay way with you because I think of your stuff as much more yeah. harmonious, even right. though you do reference that stuff yeah. in your work. Who knows? That could be the next phase. I also think there's like an interesting thing going on now where it's like a lot of the earliest illustrators that influence artists now, like were people who wanted to be fine artists and they couldn't. Yeah. And they and so they got these like illustration jobs. Right. And then they kind of transformed the field because they brought all these sensibilities right. to that. Whereas the people now, like they look at the illustrators and they're like, I want to do that. Like what they did <laughs> yeah. when they were just doing yeah. early photography was the same way. Like those people wanted to be painters. Yeah. And then people now people look at those old photographers and they're like, I want to be a photographer because yeah. of those people who were failing in their medium and right. then accidentally made something new. Yeah. This is our this is our longest episode ever. I no longer ever try to end the podcast. Sometimes when I'm at someone's house and they feel like this guy's been at my house all day, I start to end it. But this is different because I'm I'm at my house. This could go on forever. It's all happening in Zach's house. <laughs> oh, you didn't ask him what his dad thought. Now, <laughs> no, I talked about his mom not approving. The parents. The parents. They're they're happy uh, yeah. as long as I can. Uh, Keep making a living at it. Yeah. Well, they've probably been around long enough to see the ups and downs. But when they saw oh, yeah. the, the beginning, they were probably like, oh, it's a job. You know, well, that's great, right? Yeah, they, they don't quite get it. They don't get the art. It. Yeah. They don't understand, like, what it's used for or, you know, why people pay this much <laughs> for this type of stuff. But, um, just going to shrug their shoulders. Yeah. But, you know, my, my dad, he, he really instilled in me a great economic libido. You know, so I was always hustling, trying to make money. And even in school, I think a lot of people were pissed off at me because, you know, the Society of Illustrators. Yeah, yeah. They would have competitions every year and give out, you know, not insignificant sums of money. Right. 
So they, for the year 2000, they gave out a prize called the Millennial Prize, and it was $10,000 at the time, you know, pretty... At almost any time. Any time, yeah. It's not a good something chunk you turn down. For a student, it's a good, good chunk of money. And yeah. Um, and yeah, so I submitted like these giant paintings and my sketchbooks, and people were going nuts over my sketchbooks. And so I won that prize. And then at the same time, I, I got this scholarship, full scholarship for the last year of school. And I heard some people were upset because they're like... He shouldn't be getting this ten thousand dollars and the scholarship, and the school wanted to. They didn't want to give me the, the refund for the, the the tuition I'd paid because I was like, hey, I got the scholarship. We need to refund that money. They're like, but oh no, we heard you got this other prize. You don't need this money back. I'm like, oh. I need this money. <laughs> I don't want this money. I deserve this money. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you did a good job, right? right. I mean, that's yeah. basically I've won like every single other prize, like the cover art prize. I won. Six years in a row, the Eisner cover. You won the Eisner Prize six years in a row for covers. Yeah. Huh. I did not know that there was. There a, was even an award. It's I knew like that. I know there are the Eisner's awards. Right. I didn't realize that they have one just for the covers. Really. So like Alex Ross was a big one. He won like four years in a row. Mm. And I think I'm the long, longest running one so far. Look at that. Yeah. So. So, uh, so, so again, the system likes James Jean. A certain system, yeah. And uh, to go back to the it's parents, worked out, yes. right? The parents understand that they're like fabulous that, prizes. Right. Yes, they understand the prizes and the. Do you have expensive taste? It's oh, a funny. It's a if my friends are listening to this, there, I think I'm pretty frugal from growing up, but I actually do spend um, a lot of money on. Do you have a giraffe stuff? No. What are you spending money on? Not giraffes, not well, drugs. We've established that. I live I'm, in a, I'm sitting at not clothes. I can tell you, people. Uh, yeah, t-shirt. Oh, wow. uh, no. Well, no, these are these are actually fancy like, Japanese shorts. The shorts look a little pricey. They're like cool. quilted. Like this is like one of those things where like other people who like expensive shit will you, notice. Well, right. Whereas uh, normal humans <laughs> yeah. will be like, "What are you? You're wearing shorts and you're wearing sandals." Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. But then somebody who likes money will be like, "Those are fancy sandals. I bet they're really comfortable and last a long time." Right. Well, they, these are Nikes. These are the. Those are Nike sandals. Sock sock darts. They call them. They've got a name. Yeah. Yeah. So they have this weird strap that kind of makes it look like a pair of sandals. <laughs> okay, so there's a video about your. So you do. You have like uh, but, yeah. a little bit, but okay. yeah, I you know I I just moved into a new house. Nice. It's a Frank Geary house, actually. Uh, oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. So yeah, the spoils of, so of all this. Yeah. You know. Frank Geary house. So you're struggling with the Frank Geary house. It's not literally half built. It just looks that way. Well, we, I spent the last year and a half renovating it. When I got it, it was in disrepair. And uh, yeah, so a friend of mine. It wasn't a says, nice Frank Gehry house. No. It was a fixture up or a Frank Gehry house. It's in his monograph, but he had some struggles with it with the, with the owners. They didn't want to achieve his full vision. And so it only exists as a foam core model in his book, but not as a final, fully photographed project and it hasn't been included in any of his retrospectives that he's had recently in you know LACMA and all over the world in Japan and uh, so it's a moderate it's a <laughs> it's a Frank Gehry house that has a little bit of provenance but yeah, not as much as you would as someone who was extravagant right in their body a Gary flipper for, yeah yeah <laughs> um it'll be hard to uh, so do you have like any stuff? exciting collections like like you have like lots of bobblehead toys or lots of you know, like anything like that, like or watches no. or I don't know. No, like, no, uh, that, that's the thing. Or, 
I'm I'm super boring, so you just have, I'm okay. not addicted to. This is an LA thing I've noticed. The more into things like material, material things, things yeah. people are, the less stuff they have in their house. <laughs> so like, if you're poor in LA, you just like a tricycle and a trombone and like a bouncy yeah. ball. You never know and where if you're, you're going to need it. Rich, yeah. it's like. It's all black and it's like right, minimal. And it's like a serial murderer's apartment in a yeah. ho- movie about I'd, Hollywood. I've and been the, called a serial killer before, so it's not. Was it after you had killed several people in a <laughs> row? Because that's usually it, it's how I it's how I eat. Do you like chop it all into squares and then? No, I'm very clean. So I'm Chinese, so I I, I like eating all the gristle and and the the cartilage and all that. So the bones are immaculate and I kind of cut it all out or I, I just Cheat chew it all out. the eyes out of a duck head? Oh yeah, I'll eat every, uh, anything. Because okay. I, yeah. I was at the Asian Student Society once and that freaked me out. I was like, there's a head in my, oh, dude was like, dude, <laughs> yeah, he'll fuck suck, off. Suck and he all just the, ate yeah. it in front of me. And I was yeah. like, you ate a duck's eye. Yeah. All right. Brains, uh, yeah. Okay, so it you, so it's super clean in there. Yeah, it's minimal. Um, Do you have like sand on the floor that you rake into patterns? <laughs> is that a thing? Uh, that is a thing. That is a thing. <laughs> Do you have um, a rock garden? It could be, it could be. Yeah, I have sort of like a little little rock garden. Do you have a Noguchi table? <laughs> I used to have a Noguchi table. Oh my God! <laughs> the ex took all that stuff, so. Um, she has all of your nothing, all oh, your minimalism. Like, um, but now it's more minimal. She now was it's helping. Even more. Now right? the, the stuff I have is I like to use like uh, local craftsmen. Use local craftsmen. Yes. You patronize. I local patronize. Craftsmen. Yes, the local economy. And, you know. <laughs> nice. Uh, I have some paintings by some you know friends of mine and, right. and books. And uh, other than that, there's like I have a couch, a table. But I mean, these were cho- very carefully. They're carefully selected. chosen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I can afford to not be a hoarder. Yeah. Right? So that terrifies me, the hoarding. They're hoarding people in your life? Well, no. Well, a little bit, yeah. It's just moving and having to deal with all that stuff. Thinking about thinking about passing away and being, you know, leaving death, all that stuff. Death, and, death, uh, death worries death, you. Yeah. You're already worried about death. <laughs> yeah, having a kid. You I had, I had to get life insurance and disability insurance and all that stuff. So. Wow. Yeah, trying to be responsible. But I mean, I feel like that doesn't just happen to a person. It was in you. The was, death awareness. Sure. I mean, is it, isn't it in everyone? No. no. I feel, yeah, that's where I'm messed up because I feel like everyone, like we all have similar. That's why you have to have a podcast. So people exactly. Even, I, I, I got I, I to get honestly, out and meet more Like people. if I die, I'm, I'm de- that was the yeah. end of that. Yeah. I, I would. <laughs> See, I got to deal with that. It's a good motivator, right? So that's why I kind of, I want to, do it all. I want to explore it all. I want to pack it all in. I want to explore the whole spectrum. You just of, don't want it in your house. I don't want it in my house. And it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's funny because like that's what I do. I, I make stuff that other people have to keep in their own house, and I'm just pumping out more and more stuff. Get and, it out of your yeah. house. Just get it. What does your studio look like? It's a physical. Space. It's a big box. It actually, used to be a gallery. So it's a separate place. No, I combined it all together. <laughs> So my kid is running around while I'm like painting. He's trying to reach for my for my box cutters and my my nice brushes, and I'm trying to keep him away. I've been working. Uh, my theory is that he'll become acclimated to it all and just be disinterested. But I don't know if that's gonna. He'll slowly learn, like right. not to drink yeah. turpentine. Whereas if I kept it separate in like a separate zone, like one day he'll like creep in and try. He'll and... think of it as a secret place. And yeah. Be like oh, okay. Yeah. So. Makes sense. <laughs> 
yeah. Yeah, as a parent, it's like, there's so many avenues you can go down in terms of just parenting. I met a guy who had, I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast. If I did, you can just cut this out. So he had two <laughs> tattoos. He had one on his left arm and one on his right arm. And they were, he had two daughters, eight and six or 10 and six. And they had done these refrigerator drawings in school. Yeah. And he had gotten them tattooed on his upper arms, like each one. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's cute, right? But then he was like, every time either one of them does anything, I'm gonna like something interesting. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna get a tattoo on that arm for them of that event. And I was like, that's either the best or worst <laughs> parenting. That's too much pressure on the kid. Right? But on the other hand, it's, it's like, well, he's taking responsibility. But yeah. I'm like, well, what if they go to jail? He's like, I still want to know that it was part of... Right. And I was like, yeah, I don't even yeah. know. But that You can't make them that precious like that. That's not good for them. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll find out <laughs> in 10 years. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so precious about my own body and memorializing things. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm not a good spokesman for my own art. And why I'm not out there being a clown is... Uh, I feel like I'm just a conduit for this stuff. You're, you're a good model of like, you have talent and you work hard and so you are successful. Like you're a good spokesman for that. I guess the system worked, right? Like guess, immigrant parents yeah. came over, you studied, it did, it did you work, worked yeah. hard, you did the figure drawing, you did the I, thing. I, I did, yeah. And there's still more to, uh, to conquer, you know? Uh, I don't have that Facebook money. You know, it's. I think the fact that the I'm still on the fringe of the contemporary art world that makes me want to like get in more. Even though people tell me that I don't need to worry about it, like more comedy. They'll tell me why are you so have this anxiety about not showing with the the, the best galleries or you know doing all that. He said, uh, you know, you have your own economy. You have these people that that support you, and you're very popular as an artist. You should just keep uh, doing your own thing. Whereas, you know, he he, he has a, a lot of other issues to deal with himself. I really admire him because he's fully committed to what he's doing. So as rich as he seems, I mean, his company could be on the brink of bankruptcy at any point because his costs are so high. And he's all about just trying to keep that machine going, keeping the people employed. It's more than about hmm. just himself and just doing whatever he can to keep everything alive, to make as many paintings as possible before he dies. That's like one thing that he's, he wants to make every painting that he can. He's, so. he's gone mad, it sounds he's, like. Yeah, he's a little mad. <laughs> I mean, my experience was that I relatively quickly started showing in good galleries. Yeah. You're in the Whitney Biennial. Yes. You know, that was a huge thing. I mean, th that happens to a certain number of people every year. Yeah. You know, like, and what I realized was, like, the money every is year. good. You're making money. Yeah. Or every, yeah, every two years. Um, <laughs> Sorry. You're making good money, but other than that, there's a veneer of intellectual inquiry that is laid over that work that isn't real. It's considered in a historical context over and over, but it's very shallowly done. And it is there because on the commercial end of it, that veneer is there to keep it away from the juxtaposed artists, right. essentially. Yeah. It's like to say like- This is not crass. Yeah, this is not a mass produced object right. for a reason and it's worth this much money for a reason. Yeah. And so as I got involved in that, I was like realizing like, oh, you guys aren't 
good at this. You know what I mean? Like, I would be like, I'd be like, oh, yeah, let's talk about some issues. Let's talk right. about how, like, context informs the under content. And they would just be like, yeah, did you see America's Next Top Model? It's a really good show. <laughs> and there are probably people who are, like, critics who push that kind of way of talking, but there's no response to them. Like, I'd be like, did you read that thing in the fucking voice about that thing? And they'd be like, yeah, but whatever. Like, they got in the voice. That's good. Yeah. So beneath that veneer, it was almost the same level, like, that you would read in CBR. Right. Or, like, and now, like, the level of, like, arguing and trying hard that just, like, the online comic book blogging dudes do yeah. <laughs> is really high. Like, they just, they're trying so hard because they think their target is this imagined level of intellectual seriousness, right. which isn't actually there in the art world. Yeah. But at the same time, the impression of it and of that legitimacy drives prices. Yes. But now, the prices for people like Mark Ryden, David Stupakis, like those prices that of the juxtaposed scene that like 10 years ago were like a 10th of what they were getting are now the same. Right. So like they're you're getting the same amount of money and like probably more people are seeing the work. Yeah. What you don't get is the reviews which use five letter words to try right. to describe it. But yeah. that's literally it. Like there aren't that many advantages. Right. If you're hanging out with Murakami, you're already doing exactly what all those people want to be doing. That's it. That's the prize at the end of that thing. It's like they take you out to dinner right. and then you go blah, blah, blah. And they go, oh, these buns are kind of sticky. <laughs> I don't know how long that image that that world has of itself can sustain itself because the line between that and what is a more popular art yeah. form is very thin. It's a thin membrane that's <laughs> being punctured constantly by yeah. famous people. In the end, it's hard to wrap myself around a sub. Like, what do you get if you get in there? Legitimacy and the MoMA retrospective, right? But what do you do with those <laughs> things? You'd be like... You die happy. That's what happens. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't I, know. I literally do what? Like, what do you get? Often it's I will futile. sit there it's and I, you, like, yeah. whenever a status thing starts to happen, I yeah. go, Sasha Gray licked up my cum. Like whatever happened, you won. Like after, the, like, yeah, you won. <laughs> but you, that's like some time you mentioned it. Hundreds of people in LA can say that. Like the art world gives you specific <laughs> things, and you want or don't want them. Right. And I yeah. think that once it becomes about status and like and winning, right, you have to do like, what do I want to win? Yeah. Like, yeah. So that that's something I was grappling with, but now I don't really care that much I guess I mean it's still there because it's like it's ingrained in you when you go to art school and you're surrounded by it and and it gives you like this it's like running hurdles you know it's like this challenge is it athletic to make the work like or is yeah, it like well, you know I mean, is the work the point of the work to work or is the point of the work to be like ah I'm I'm winning yeah that's an interesting question right so like in school it was almost it was athletic in terms of okay I'm gonna paint the life model, you know, make the most realistic painting of the life model. And that was, that was an easy kind of athletic thing where you could compete against people. And actually people got Unless super it was in emotional. perspective. Right, that's true. My, <laughs> my weak point. Yeah, people would cry and throw their brushes in the, in the garbage can at SVA. It was uh, Yeah, and my takeaway from thing. stuff like that was don't be like that. Right. You know, like <laughs> you want an A. Right. Like, like what are you going to do with your A? Like unless yeah. your A leads to something else, it doesn't right. matter. It's not an end in itself, you know. Yeah. Know. But, you know, the, it, it works that the status thing, it opens up doors for you, funding. Like say, say Saigo Chang, right? 
okay. the, the fireworks guy. Right. He doesn't work with any galleries. Right. He just works with museums. Right. And because of the reputation he has, he gets people just giving him millions of dollars to do whatever he wants. Right. Right. If you put it that way, then the end is the work. So is there exactly. expensive it, work all, that you want to make that you can't? I used to think I had that in me, but these days, I mean, it's been like 16 years of making work and I feel like I'm just like a single image picture guy, you know? Right. So again, like that story, <laughs> right. that, that, I don't buy that one. Like, like <laughs> oh, if I had funding, I could right. make, no. Like, no, you, you would, right? just, yeah, I just, I'll just make a bigger painting. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's the goal then? Like, you know, like, let's say yeah, you had all, like, Yes, like prestige does lead to funding and paying the bills, but right. if you're paying the bills, right. you have the sandals. Right. So I, I, <laughs> I don't want to be at the end. I don't want to feel like, okay, this is it. I don't want to be content, right? So right, like, but I mean, doesn't the work need to be made regardless of the prestige oh, involved? Sure. Yeah, no, it does. Does you're it right. drive you crazy? Do you like, ah, oh, this isn't finished yet. I need to get out of my head. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I want to make and pictures I want to make. It's just... The whole art world thing is very fascinating to me, and it's just like another, you know, I'm interested in a whole ton of things. Like photography. We didn't even talk about photography. Let's like, talk about uh, photography. I didn't see any photos on your site. Uh, so. No, they're all on, on my Instagram. Oh. So I, Instagram is hard. <laughs> we could talk about social me. media. I love social media, too. It's, Let's it's talk about fashion. social This is podcast is going to go on. Forever. I have a rough time with Instagram <laughs> because I feel like I don't know how to talk to people on Instagram. I just, like, you can like things or not like them, and you can't share them. And so I'm like, all my instincts from Twitter and Facebook don't work. Yeah. But everyone, artists are all over Instagram. And I'm like, I don't understand. I don't get good pictures until months after I've made the painting. What are you taking pictures of? Yeah, it's a whole other language. It's interesting you say that your Twitter vernacular doesn't work with Instagram because I'm not a Twitter guy. Yeah, because I talk. Yeah, like that's my talk. Twitter is like, I'll talk. Yeah, and then I'm, like, I'm reticent. I hold back. I'm trying to maintain this veneer of mystery. Yeah. So Instagram really helps me do that because I can carefully curate the images I put on there. You know, I take these photos. People don't know where I am exactly. You know, I travel. I take these photos. So it's a project. Post. Well, okay. You could say it is a project. In a sense, it's kind of, but you've thought about it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm like crafting like. this kind of this brand, this this uh, this image of myself, and you know, throughout my career, I've always been very forthcoming with my process, like sharing sketches, sharing how things are done. I used to have a blog where I broke everything down and and explained what I did, and that seemed to get a lot of traction. So you took a picture of a tree in front of the garage. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 10,300 people hearted it. <laughs> Sometimes my photos get more likes than the artwork, which is interesting now. Because before, it was the complete opposite. People were disinterested in the photos. People would comment, why are you posting photos? But then now it's kind of turned over. It's like, it's all meshed together in this. So the photos are like travel photos, essentially. Essentially, yeah. And, and there's just, like a hawk over here. Strange moments. No selfies. Right. And so then the art that you put up is like, these are the slides you get back from the gallery or you have a photographer, right. like, right? Yeah, exactly. So how do you, this drives me nuts. Cause like Instagram ideally should be like a record of human activity. Like yeah. there's my Instagram, it's instant. Me going like, this is how it is in real life for me. I'm like, Anne, can you please collect the photos that my gallery sent me and put one up on Instagram? 
uh, like three or four times this week. It's totally artificial. It's totally fake. Like it's <laughs> like it's just like because people are on Instagram instead of Tumblr, we have right. to do process. this. Process. People like process pictures. Like you know. That's true, it's but I mean, long. you've actually spaced out your pictures. Right. You know, so yeah. like one day it'll be this one, as if you're doing them like you did one in a day, which you didn't, right? No. It's just like they're there. <laughs> so how do you do it? Do you have like a person, or do you just do it? Yourself? No, I, I just do. I do it all myself. So uh, you're like, oh, today I'm feeling like putting up yeah. this one. I try to alternate between artwork and, and you photos. Are, yeah, you're yeah. doing that. So that photo was from the Human Condition show. Have you seen that? Uh, no. It's this exhibit at this abandoned hospital in West Adams uh-huh. put together by um, an art advisor who got together a group of like, about like 80 established and emerging artists in L.A. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of an interesting. That sounds cool. Uh, yeah, it's a really cool show. You should check it out. But. Yeah. My kid hated it. He didn't even want to go, <laughs> go in. He was yes, completely... but I mean, he's not really the art age yet. Is he like? No, he's not like the two, age. To, right? He's like the he's age one. where <laughs> he can sense energies. You know, like nonverbal. So he's energies. sensing bad energy in there. And I think that says something about the contemporary art world. You know, like the he, condition humane. Yeah, we. As soon as he went through the door, he wanted to get out, and uh, that was kind of a weird epiphany because. How How old is he now? Well, he's twenty months. So, like walking through, I'm like. Looking at all this art, even though I'm interested in it, it does look like it was all created by mentally disturbed, morally bankrupt people. (laughs) (laughs) Not that they are, but say if you walked in and you were a completely like naive person, you know, it's like you're in this creepy hospital and there's like this, you know, painting of like uh, an exploded figure fractured and crazy colors and it's like, violently scrawled all over the place and there's like glado paint on the walls as if you know there's like a mental patient it's a lot of signifiers of uh things having gone wrong architecturally yeah if you're a child and you're like just like what's a safe space look like what does this, this place look yeah, like exactly. right like so okay it's, we should talk about <laughs> social media because you have a good bajillion followers right yes so at what point in was it the covers, or was it the Prada thing? At what point did you realize that you were getting a bajillion emails and fan mails and whatever? Like, what point was it like, oh, now I'm famous to these people? It, it was the, uh, the comic covers, especially after I won the first comic cover award. So people were always Eisner's. looking at the Eisner Awards? They were like, who's... Well, in the industry, yeah. 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 Hmm. So yeah, I was getting emails from, like, other comic book professionals. Because, and- I mean, I actually, like... At least on Twitter, I mean, I don't, again, I have a rough time with Instagram. But on Twitter, like, I look at, like, comic book artists, and they don't have that many followers. They have, right. like, a few thousand. Yeah. Like, is that just the way the two different things work? It's like, Yeah, because Instagram is just so much more visual. People yeah. want to see the drawings. They, they don't want to hear the ramblings of, a, you know, comic book artists. The ramblings of uh, Steranko are pretty yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> Steranko is pretty great. Someone else also, who was it? It wasn't uh, John Byrne or... Another guy, he ended up like creating like his own religion or this crazy theory of how the world Ditko? was created. Maybe. I mean, Ditko's nuts. Like that's a well-established thing that he's like he's a crazy Ayn Rand objectivist, you know. But I don't think he's on Twitter, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, Frank Miller's nuts too now. Frank Miller. I mean, he said some dicey things for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. Well, you have five hundred fifty-one thousand followers. Yep. Social media. That must mean that over the last 10 years, you've had weird interactions with fans. Yeah. I mean, cur- currently, there's, there's one person who always comments, be my father, on every single 
pic- thing I post. Uh, I'm not sure what that means, but Swine. every picture, be my father or uh, notice me father or I think if this person hears this podcast, they'll be happy that I acknowledged that comment. <laughs> That's true. Pro- this is probably like the most exciting moment of their fandom. I wonder if the father thing is like the mom thing. Like girls will call certain other girls mom and it's like, oh, you're so cool. I want you to be my mom. Your wisdom. Yeah. Are you Maybe wise? that's more like a, like a feminist girl power thing. But why perpetuate the patriarchy, you know? Yeah, I don't think that's weird. <laughs> that's just how much they look up to you. So there are in-process photos. Right. And then there's actual work. Okay. This is an interesting dynamic also. And this is the last thing we'll talk about maybe. Because, <laughs> John, I can tell you're hungry. I'm good. I'm putting it on me. You have a lot of fans, and then you probably make a painting, and you're like, nobody's bought the painting yet. Nobody's bought the painting yet. Nobody's bought the painting yet. Because the disparity between, like, fans, especially comic book fans, they are pay, they'll pay you three ninety five for a painting, and then collectors, which is something that in the fine art world is not true. If you're a famous fine artist, then that means you have a lot of collectors. Right. Not that many people know who you are, because yeah. it's a smaller world. Yes. but. That must be a strange thing to wrap your head around. Like, do I spend my day like trying to monetize something in a pop sense that my fans can go by, or yeah. do I spend my day trying to sell this painting to a collector? Well, most of the paintings I do not are already spoken for. Oh, that's that cool. I post. And then, in order to engage the the fans, I sell prints of those images. Right. Do the prints sell well? Do you feel like oh, they're? Yeah. I guess I'm, my question is like, would that be a business in itself? if it wasn't for the people buying uh, the Definitely, yeah. I mean, I used to have a web store in my own house for, for years, and uh, we recently changed to a different business model where I'll do these timed prints mm. so that they're more uh, limited. So within a span of 24 hours, we sell as many as we can, and that's the end of the edition after those 24 hours. Whereas before, I was doing some limited editions, say like 100 prints, 200 prints, and then also selling open editions at the same time. Because people just didn't want to get an image whenever, you know, random times during the year. Now that we're doing these timed editions, you know, there's like a sense of urgency and like uh, some of the more popular images will sell like a thousand prints in a day at like 200 bucks each. That's decent. That's pretty decent. That's, that's, that's a Richard Gary house there. We do like four or five releases a year, so it, it does pretty well. So do you organize that stuff yourself? We have some no, I, I have you? I have a partner helping me out with that, and he's he's based in uh, Colorado, and he's like a specialty printmaker. And um, uh, we've worked together a lot over the years, but now he's like dedicated to making my stuff. And there's like three or sometimes four people working on on my stuff at any time. That's cool. So, so that yeah. you don't have to like worry about it. No, I used to. But See all the customer emails and the orders and all so that, but now how, I don't. For how many years were you just doing it all yourself? Very early on, like I said, the economic libido thing. Like I was, so you were always hustling. I was always hustling. I had like two assistants working on salary, like fulfilling orders, making prints, packing. But then I would also, you know, I'd be like ordering the, the paper, the, the packing supplies, monitoring all those levels and having to deal with damaged shipments or so missing shipments. So when you were doing that, were you getting less work done? I don't know, the same amount of work. I'm 
Yeah, yeah, it's weird how that always kind of... <laughs> and now, now that I have the kid, you know, it's just like one thing replaces the other. But yeah, I was doing that for a long time. Like, since the very beginning, I was always trying to monetize the work, sell prints. And yeah, eventually it was like a pretty self-sustaining thing. Yeah, so it was like a third web store stuff, prints and books, and then a third commercial projects, and then a third like fine art mm-hmm. stuff. And by commercial projects, like I wasn't really doing... Um, magazine illustrations anymore so it would be like a specialty thing like recently i worked with apple on the ipad pro and pencil stuff and i did like a headphone for beats so it's like stuff that kind of promotes you as an artist promotes your brand like say like absolute does a thing with an artist uh, that sort of thing nice absolute bottles yeah these are wine yeah specialty wine bottles Uh, they're very nice oh thanks should have brought you some actually I have, it, I have have a ton you, of it. Does it taste good? Apparently, it tastes really. You could read reviews on the wine. It, it's actually. So you didn't drink the bourbon, or it says bourbon. Well, they're they're it's, aged in bourbon barrels, okay. Pappy Van Winkle bourbon barrels. Right. So, so when so, I tell my friends, they're like freaking out, Pappy Van Winkle. So when you drink, oh yeah, I heard a whole podcast on that. I'm criminal. <laughs> Never mind. We're going another rabbit hole. All right. Okay. We've talked a lot. I think we're good. <laughs> world record. Is there anything else you have to tell the world? If you say something for five minutes, we hit the three-hour mark. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, we're we're done. I think. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm going to say thank you so much. For being very for generous being with your show. time, James. Yes. Oh, you're welcome. Who is your best art friend? Yeah, well, that's out. the thing. I don't have – I mean, I have a lot of friends that aren't artists. Are they people who are interesting on a podcast? Yeah, maybe. I, I could. Like, who's someone that would be interesting to say that you're friends with on a podcast? Oh, shit. Oh, man. I'm putting me on the spot. I don't want to, like... You're giving think. permission now. Do you know the guy who owns um, Home Depot? I don't know. Okay, Do you the, know the, the guy, uh, the guy, uh, uh, an ice, famous ice skater? Neurosurgeon. No, uh... Sasha, right, but... Well, the guy who created Giphy came over the other night. Do you know Giphy? No, I know what a GIF is. You know, like, on the keyboards now, on, like, iMessage or on Facebook, you can, like, send... Oh, G-I-P-H-Y. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like the anime, like guy who like He's a tech dude. doing that. Yeah, the tech, he came over. Yeah. Do you guys play video games? I don't have a TV. Whoa, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> you have a computer though, right? Many computers. So. Okay. They're kind of like t- TVs now. They are worse than TVs. They okay. S- they suck they're, you in. They're glowing rectangles. Okay, so you, do we do three hours? Oh, we're well over. We're awesome. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Score. All right. All right. We're did done. It. We're done. Three hours of James Jean. Edit it down. We get 15 minutes of usable material. Wonderful. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, James Jean's latest work at a solo show at Kai Kai Kiki Gallery in Tokyo, which happens to be owned and curated by Takashi Murakami. It'll be up from April 6th to May 2nd. Also, John is almost done with my book called The Puerto Rican War. It's a graphic novel made all in woodcut about the failed revolution in Puerto Rico in 1950, how they tried to kill President Truman, how they tried to overthrow some towns, the results, and the state of Puerto Rico. All made in enough woodcuts that it took me years and gave me arthritis. I'll have more details for you soon, and I'm excited. Thanks. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page. 
We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We also have a Patreon set up so we can keep the kitchen fired up and cooking new episodes for you all year. We have goodies available for donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us with whatever you can at patreon.com backslash We Eat Art, all one word. We Eat Art is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. I worry about forgetting things, but then I just convince myself that I think about so many things that are different during the week that I can't be expected to remember them all. But listening to the podcast, you bring up all sorts of references. Because it's the only thing I can think of at that moment. I've forgotten (laughs) everything else. He's a good referencer. Put that on my gravestone. He was a good referencer. That's, but that's what makes this podcast, I think, superior to a lot of the other ones. The references? Out there. Yes. We need the context, the references. Oh.